On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Tom LaMarche of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I record an interview that I have with somebody in the bike frame building world. The objective is to help them tell their story. How did they find their way into the world of handmade bicycles as a frame builder or occasionally a frame painter or somebody else somewhere in this sort of ecosystem? So our guest this week, Tom LaMarche, is exactly the same age as me. We have the same birthday in 1990. That's pretty cool. And uh, Tom tells us his story of uh, all the all the time that he spent, you know, getting up to speed on this from when he discovered the handmade bike sort of world and and to where he's at today. So uh, he rode BMX and fixed gear freestyle as a younger person. And he was actually uh, like a sponsored rider for a couple different companies, which is pretty cool. He, he knows how to ride very well. I'm impressed with his riding. And, uh, and he rides mountain bikes and all sorts of stuff. And he builds really cool bicycles today in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's got a cool workspace that I was able to visit uh, more than once. He's had different workspaces in Philadelphia, and I've got to see two of them now. Very cool. And he's got really cool machines. He was able to go to a community college for some metalworking courses in the past couple of years. And I think it shows in the tooling that he makes and some of the dropouts and other parts of the bicycle frame that he makes. He's methodical. His work is very good. It's very sharp. Uh, I like the aesthetic of it. I think a lot of people respond to the color schemes and the logos, but also just within the metalwork, there's sort of an aesthetic and there's like a brand identity and it looks good. And it's I've seen it sort of congeal and come into its own more over the past few years that's been exciting to see i'm a fan of his work and i feel a lot of confidence that he's going to continue to raise the bar and do more and so i wanted to share his story with all of you here enjoy i think the first time that i realized that there were bikes made in the u.s by hand was whistler bmx for sure as a kid just seeing like fbm snm solid standard you know all of the frames that everybody wants to ride were made in the U.S. Terrible one. What else? I'm, I'm missing a bunch, but just off the top of my head, that's you know what I'm coming up with. So yeah, all of the good shit that everybody wanted was a USA-made frame. No one wanted a Taiwanese frame. That's what you got when you started out and you bought a complete, and then eventually put all of your good parts on it, and then the frame was like the final piece to complete the puzzle. You got a sick frame with all of the other good components. So yeah, BMX was the first time I realized that there were frame builders. I never really had an interest in frame building then. I was just riding and I wanted that stuff. And then as I progressed through riding and working in shops and a whole lot of other things, I started to realize that there were frame builders that made other kinds of frames. And it was mostly through fixed gear that I found out about those kind of builders. And I think like Brooklyn Machine Works, even though they were primarily making like mountain bikes and dirt jumpers and BMX frames back in the day, they kind of opened my eyes to that world since they started to make a track bike. And then some other people I knew, Ted James, uh, he made frames too. And again, he was kind of mostly making like fixed gear frames at the time. So I sort of like saw frame building through a different light than a lot of people do, you know, less like the classic road style of building and more of like a BMX and mountain bike and just kind of weird 
fixed gear bikes that people were building back then. And that, that was like really my introduction to frame building later in life when it really grabbed my interest. Yeah. And I can tell from the riding that you do, and I know from conversations we've had that you've been, you rode BMX a lot as like a teenager, right? And then you got into fixed gear freestyle and that, that was formative for you, right? Yeah. I grew up uh, skating first and then got into BMX, I think around like 12, 13, something like that. And that was definitely like, I was just obsessed with it from 12 all the way through high school and then started to get into the fixed gear thing kind of later in high school and, you know, then just into general cycling and mountain biking and everything else. But that's what really got the spark going for me. Yeah. 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 And it's, I, I hate how the cycling world can be kind of clicky and it isn't always, but it certainly can be that, you know, you have your, your roadies and you have your mountain bikers and BMX and BMX has always been a little bit harder for me to relate to just cause I don't come from that particularly. And it is quite different. And, and I appreciate the hell out of all my friends who, who actually, first of all, can ride that sort of riding is cool as hell. And also that it's just like, it's a vernacular that I wish I was more, you know, familiar with. And I think it helps inform like a, a whole different perspective on how you would build not BMX bikes too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's helped me in so many ways because with BMX, you want to overbuild everything as much as you can. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just with the riding too, and knowing, you know, what, what felt good on a BMX or a dirt jumper, what, you know, it needs to be at the bare minimum strength wise, at least. I mean, I know a road bike isn't going to need the same building as a BMX bike, but you know, it gives you a good idea of, of you know, what you can actually, how far you can push things before they're going to break. And I think a lot of builders don't have that background where they broke frames or, you know, denting things and we're constantly just breaking shit all the time. So yeah, it's, it's nice to have that experience. Yeah. And you know, the know-how from that at least. Yeah. So I, I know of some of the points along, you know, you sort of getting into frame building. I mean, now you've been dabbling with it and doing it uh, for years. And I don't know exactly how long I see the shop. I've got to visit your shop when I was in Philadelphia for the Philly bike expo. And I know that you've had a shop of your own for at least a handful of years now, but it goes back further than that. You worked some at Stinner bikes and you had some other connections to different places. Like where was the first like major step where you actually started to, to take action on this journey? We'll call it toward frame building. Yeah. I first got interested in in 2015 and that's when i apprenticed under lance at square belt and i kind of knew him i didn't know him super close but a lot of people i knew in new york at the time knew him and he was building a lot of track bikes and things like that all philip raised um so yeah 2015 is is really when i like ventured into it and got my first apprenticeship and lance taught me how to braise he had a, a small shop in his basement in brooklyn and he you know, did everything by hand, like had the miter templates from Bicad, filed everything by hand, set everything up, really didn't have any machine tools, just had a jig. And he actually had a little powder cutting set up in the basement too. That was pretty cool. And yeah, I worked for him for, I don't know. I'm trying to think how long it was actually. Might've been less than a year, but maybe somewhere right around the one year mark. And after that, I moved over to Horse Cycles, who was also in Brooklyn. And 
learned a little bit more from Thomas. So, you know, I kind of learned like the foundation from Lance and just the, the basics and how to use an actual torch. And I was always hungry to kind of learn more and more and more. And I wanted to build mountain bikes at the time. I didn't really want to build track bikes as much. So what I was trying to build wasn't really necessarily what some of the builders I was working for built. And I was always curious, like, you know, how do you do this aspect or how do you bend this or how do you use hooded dropouts and all these other things. So like each time I would kind of outgrow who I was working for, I'd move to someone else. And then, yeah, I worked for Thomas for like probably a year or so. And I made knives for him as well as doing some frame building stuff. And we did a batch of frames for this bike shop affinity that was in Brooklyn. And we did a batch of steel track frames. So that was cool to get to like go through 50 bikes. That was totally new to me. And I did mostly some brazing and finish work. I would braze a lot of the dropouts on them and do the bridges. And Thomas would do the rest of the frame. I think the rest of the frames were all TIG welded. Um, yeah. So I did that for a bit and then I felt like I, you know, kind of outgrew that and was ready for my, my next step. And John probably from the Radivist got me an interview with Aaron out at Stinner at the time because they were looking for somebody. And I had a couple interviews with them over the phone. And then we decided that I was going to come out there for a week, give things a try, see if it was a good fit or not before I decided to move across the country with all my stuff. Yeah. And yeah, I went out there for a week. It was, it was really cool. Everybody got along well. It was awesome. They had a, a lot of people working for them at the time, which was kind of like mind blowing to me. You know, I was just used to like one man shops and then Stinner to me, especially like I didn't know them other than on Instagram really. And like on Instagram, like things have such a different appearance yeah. than what's actually going on. So like, yeah, it was just really funny to see, you know, the contrast from Instagram to real life. But yeah, it was definitely more of a working environment with with multiple, I'm sorry, with with multiple employees. Yeah, doing different aspects of the operation. So it was, it was pretty cool to see the business end of it there, and I learned a lot more from them as well. And you know, I did that for I think a year before ending up coming back to the East Coast. But uh, yeah, so I, I skipped a little bit here too. Mm -hmm. While I was like kind of wrapping my time up at Horse, my apartment in New York like got totally flooded. I was living with a few other people in a, in a loft and I was like really over New York sort of. And then the apartment flooded and it was, it was fucking insane. The fire department came. <laughs> there were guys working on the floor above and they hit a sprinkler head. And it just like flooded from above us down and it wouldn't stop. We had to like call the fire department because there's no other, you know, oh, they'd yeah. come and shut the water off at the valve outside of the building. So I was like just tired in New York at the time that yeah. happened. I got a new job opportunity and yeah, I packed my van up full of like the few possessions I had and drove across the country with my girlfriend at the time. And just went to Santa Barbara kind of on this whim that I got a job. I didn't have anywhere to live yet. So I was just living out of my van while I was working at Stinner. And there was like this little shower. It was like a little business industrial complex. And there was like a shower, kind of like a weird bathroom with a shower that the whole complex could use, but no one really used that one. So I would shower there and just like sleep in my van for the time being until I figured it out. And I did that for, I don't know, a couple months before I just got sick of it and was, was like, this sucks. I need to find a house. Um, 
but I didn't realize like moving out there that the housing vacancy was, was 1%. It's like pretty difficult to find a house, let alone an affordable house. Yeah. And throughout my time out there, like working, I was just like, I just never really had like a comfortable living situation. I'd moved into this woman's like kind of carriage house thing. And then that didn't work out. And then I was living like Aaron who owns dinner, put me up and I was living with him for a little bit. And eventually it's just like, I had to come back home. My, my dad got sick and like Santa Barbara wasn't really working out for me as much as I loved like working for those dudes. Um, just, it just, you know, it's just a difficult place to live if you're a regular person. Yeah. So yeah, I did about a year there. It was really fun. I definitely missed the riding out there a ton. Um, I miss working with those dudes too. They were really great. And I came back to Philly and I think that was like almost three years ago at this point, maybe four actually might've been four years ago. And I came back and I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to be in Philly, like I got to find a shop here to, you know, keep moving forward and working and doing my thing. So I looked and looked and looked and I was having like a really hard time finding places. Yeah. And then I ended up renting a space from this bike shop, Firth and Wilson, who is partly owned by David and Simon. And Simon used to work for Belinky. And then he moved on and he was doing his own thing. And they had the shop and he had a little frame building shop in the back. And there was another builder too, uh, Chris Hensel, who was building stuff at the time. So it was basically me, Simon, and Chris in the back of the shop. And you've been in their newer shop, but this was the old one. And it was a, just a crazy, cool old building. And yeah, we just had a little frame shop in the back. I really wasn't making a ton of frames then. I feel like I didn't really have a brand yet. I was just still kind of like tinkering around and, you know, trying to figure things out on my own. And was there for a little bit. And I think we moved after a year into the new shop. So moved from that to the new shop, helped them move everything. And then was in that shop for about a year. And then finally moved into my own space about a year ago. Um, and yeah, the building that you just saw at the Philly bike expo was like, finally me having my own space that wasn't shared with anybody. Yeah. And I had had like a few machine tools that I've collected sort of slowly over my time at the other two shops. And just like all these bits and pieces of a frame shop that, you know, everybody like slowly collects and just builds up. And I was like, okay, I, I kind of have my, enough of my own shit now. Like I can go out in my own shop and feel comfortable. I have enough of the tools to, to actually make bikes and not have to rely on like anybody else's tools. Cause we kind of shared everything at the other shop. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it's been a, a lot of shop moving. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, I posted recently my recap of like all the different shops that I've occupied since 2013 or something. And, um, yeah, it's a lot for me too. And it doesn't even, it just seems like a way of life. It's like, you just have to move your stuff all the time. Like now that I'm going to own a building, it's crazy to think about like, wait, I won't have to do this all the time. It, it sucks moving all this. Like it's not easy stuff to move. And one of the hardest things is just finding space. It's, it's very, very rare to find the kind of space that a frame builder or in my case, a small machine shop could actually rent. It just doesn't exist in small quantity like you would need in order to make it practical or affordable. Yeah, that really is the hardest part of frame building, I think. If anyone were to ask me that, it's 
just having the space to do it and being able to afford it, especially in like a major city, yeah. it's just becoming so much harder. You know, Philly, especially was a city where a while ago you could definitely find shops like that pretty easy to run out. And yeah, it's just becoming less and less available. That that kind of space. Yeah. Um, it was really cool to see all the shops that you had for sure. I really liked that. So that was cool to see like, you're, you know, it's not just me that's going through it. Like so many people go through this, you know, this phase of just like shop to shop to shop and moving all this heavy shit. And it's so miserable, like worrying about where am I going to go next? How long am I going to be at yeah. this spot? How am I going to move like this crazy stuff that I got in here? You know, this isn't like, this is not stuff that people move every year. This is stuff that stays in the shop and it sits yeah. for a long time. It's tough when you are thinking about like maybe you have a rental and it has power and it has space and you're thinking about buying a Bridgeport or something. And then you think, what happens when this deal that I have for this shop dries up and then I have a 2000 pound machine or whatever it is and you need to put it somewhere and you don't have that spot to actually keep it. And for me, when I look back on all the shops that I rented, none of them were like, totally legitimate spaces they were always like somebody i knew had a little bit of extra space they could sublet for a time or i had a buddy who like owned a building and you know they they had some capacity but then it's like none of those are very secure long-term things none of those had like a written lease uh yeah i think the first time i was ever on an actual lease was like a little bit over a year ago and this is like a pretty expensive place by far the most expensive i've had and anyway, it's just like there's not a whole lot of security. So to think that you're going to fill it up with expensive stuff. And I was in a situation once where I kind of got kicked out after I first got all my manual machines and I couldn't find a shop right away. And I was starting to actually consider paying like $150 a month for a storage unit that had no power and no and it, $150 a month maybe doesn't seem like that much, but I had such a good deal in this low cost of living city that like that was close to as much as I was spending on rent. So like, you know, yeah. to not have power or to be able to do any work there, but to just have to like hire riggers or something to move machines into a storage unit just to wait until I could find the next space. Just it's it's very intimidating. Yeah, it's scary for sure. I think about that shit all the time. I'm like what am I going to do if I, yeah, like exactly. What am I going to put this in storage and pay 200 bucks a month for all my shit to just be crammed in like a one car storage unit basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And but, I've gotten, yeah, it's, it's a real fear for sure. And I, you know, people who have a shop in their house do not realize how lucky they have it from start to finish, you know, just getting into it and having the stability of like building your tools up and just having, I mean, just being able to practice in your house, you know what I mean? Like if you just want to go practice welding for, for three hours or something at, you know, nine o'clock at night, right? Like it's, it's so nice to have that convenience. So I envy anyone who has a garage or a space in their house that they're, they're able to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, when, when you, like for me, I've said that, you know, space is the hardest and most expensive thing. And then, you know, I actually hired someone and I have payroll. Well, that's, way more expensive than space. But like when I talk, like uh, somebody was doing a class project about, you know, like researching what it costs to run a manufacturing business. And I'm like, okay, number one's payroll. Number two is space. The machinery is not as expensive as it seems. It's expensive, but it also holds its value pretty well and it produces a mountain of good stuff. So it's like kind of hard to say that it's expensive, but anyway, yeah, it's the, 
if you don't have employees, then space is definitely the biggest and hardest thing, in my opinion. Right, right. Yeah, the machines really don't cost anything. I mean, at least if you're on the East Coast, you know, there's, you know, so many deals to be found or even just getting like, just getting stuff for free. If you just know the right people or the right places to look. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really not the machinery, especially like the manual stuff that most yeah. brand builders are acquiring. Yep. Um, but that's really the only way I've been able to have a shop too. It's just like slowly finding these deals or like, yeah, just finding weird deals and situations that, you know, allow you to have this machinery. Like my alignment table was a, an old, um, it was from like an old, uh, newspaper press and yeah. it set all the type of so it's this big, weird cast plate that's kind of an odd size. And my buddy's dad just had it sitting on his farm. You know, he was a machinery collector and, you know, just like, yeah, sure, take it. And you stash that and have that. Like I had that stashed in my cousin's garage for a while because I had nowhere to put it. And yeah, yeah you just find these, these crazy deals. But that's part, I, I kind of almost like that more sometimes. Yeah. It's like the weird, the weird chase of like finding all these oddball, like horizontal mills and everything that everybody yeah is seeking out for brain building and and then they have a story, telling the story like, yeah exactly like telling the story like oh man there's this crazy ass old machinist guy he made clocks and you know he had all of this stuff crammed into the shop or something and it's just cool it's cool to meet those freaks and people and those kind of people who have that stuff who are basically the same as frame builders like they just hoarded all this weird shit their whole life to do like their hobby for some kind of living yep. and then some you're getting it from them which is this is cool you know it's yep. cool to interact with people they appreciate that too. When you're like, yeah, I make bike frames or I make this. And they're like, okay, you know, this person's actually doing something that this is cool to see the second life that it's getting. And, you know, they're, they're stoked that you're going to actually use it because how many people are, are in our age bracket who, who care about any of this stuff? Yeah. And, you know, it's like, I mean, it's just all getting lost or scrapped. Yeah. Yeah, no, for real. Uh, there's not a lot of people who are like, I think I was 25 when I got a bridge port and like I was over the moon about it and I spent a lot of hours cranking the handles on that. And there's just not a lot of people in their twenties who want to do that or, or who can make it yeah. happen even if they do want to, it's difficult to the space and all that. But anyway, and I want to, I want to emphasize something, which is that if you're the kind of person who's like, finds themselves talking to a lot of people generally. And like, for instance, when uh, like I just bought this building and I got, I think a pretty decent deal on it and I'm just really lucky to have found the building at all and that it was for sale. And I found it because I was trying to buy another Bridgeport. I went to a Craigslist post, you know, I, I uh, went to buy a machine that I saw on Craigslist and then I started asking about the building and this is like one of the best opportunities I've had in my life. But I look back at all these different rentals that I've had in the past and all the machines that I picked up used. And most of them, you know, or some of them were listed on a marketplace like Craigslist or something. But a lot of them, it was just because you knew somebody or you followed a lead on one thing and then you found another thing. And I know um, I have some friends who they're just always talking, talking, talking to all the different people who run shops in their town and they know all these people. Right. And that's where you find all the best deals and that's where you get all the best like job opportunities and all that stuff is like, if you just are kind of engaged in, you know, knowing what's going on and talking to people, uh, you're going to get like the first crack at everything. And if you're trying to build a frame building shop, you need space and you need tools. And I think that's probably the best approach that I've ever found to finding those weird deals is to just talk to people. Definitely. And those, those dudes usually love to talk. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, either they don't want to and they they don't like talking to people or they like talking too much and you need to like have like a like you need an exit plan when you go <laughs> you like go to pick up yeah, a machine you really and you're like, Okay, at two thirty I'm gonna get a phone call and I'm gonna have to leave. Exactly. Yeah. You gotta like I said, you gotta get the Emmy music going or something or, or the Chappelle <laughs> wrap it up button. You gotta get out of there sometimes. Yep. <laughs> So anyway, back to your story. Uh, so you, you had a, a couple shop spaces. Now you're in your own shop and you don't need to worry about things getting misplaced or going missing, or you don't need to, you, you both don't need to feel bad that you, maybe you're the messy one and you feel guilty about it. And you also don't have to feel bad that your space is getting messed up all the time by somebody else. It's really kind of nice to have that ownership. Definitely. Yeah. Having somebody mess your stuff up all the time or clean up after them is, you know, not fun. And probably the biggest reason why people end up not being shopmates anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's nice to have my own space for now. Um, I don't have to worry about any of that other stuff, but it is still, my shop is still limited and I know I'm going to have to move probably within the next year, which I'm not looking forward to. So now at this point, I'm kind of like, all right, I'm at the age where, you know, I'm paying rent on a shop and an apartment and it's basically a mortgage. So I kind of need to start looking at like homes with an attached garage or something, I think is a next move, which is kind of crazy to think that like, because of frame building, I'm looking for a home with a shop connected to it yeah. that I can use. I mean, I, I'm, like for me, I would, you know, it would be nice to own your own home, but also like the, the shop is more important to me than the yeah. house. Like, I don't mind living in one bedroom apartment, but yep. yeah. That's so exactly that's how I next. feel. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, if you, if you just have a tiny living space and giant shop below it, that's cool. I can do that all day. Yeah. Um, I think the only reason uh, I yeah. ever want a house is so that I have a yard for my dog and to have like, if I'm going to live in Michigan, like I've been, then I want to have campfires and I can't do that because I don't have any yard space, but like my apartment being a one, that's fine. Like I don't need any more than a one right. bedroom. Yeah. Yeah, living wise, I don't need a whole lot. Yard, yard would be nice too, for sure, especially if you have pets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, congratulations on the shop, man. That's that's pretty huge. And like we were saying, like it's so funny that you just went to talk to a guy about a Bridgeport and you ended up buying a shop. It's like yeah, the most was... expensive machine ever. Yeah, exactly. I asked him, I was like, oh yeah, you're shutting down the business, huh? Like, what's the deal with the building? Do you own this? Yeah. I was like, oh, are you going to sell it? He's like, yeah, I'd like to sell it this year. <laughs> I was like, uh, I don't think I can, but I would love to buy it. Can you show me around? And then I just jumped through <laughs> as many hoops as I had to, to buy it. And I can't yeah. believe I pulled it off, but I did. Yeah, dude, that's impressive. I don't, I don't know how you do the business side of things. That's where I lack. I'm trying to be better about it, but yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. You have an employee and a business that's successful and you're able to use, you know, your business to purchase this building, to grow it even more. That's that's super impressive. Yeah, the the joke is on the bank. They think I can pay this mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh I I'm pretty excited pretty excited about it, uh, that it's working out this well. Now yeah. um Yeah. Tell me more about, you did a course at the Bicycle Academy and you did, uh, I think, some like trade school, like metal working sort of trade school certificate or something. Like uh, where, where yeah. are we, did we already gloss over some of that or is that still coming in your sort of timeline here? 
Yeah, I totally forgot about that. So that was <laughs> once I moved back to Philly. Sorry, there's going to be all kinds of gaps here. That's <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so when I moved back to Philly and I was kind of like looking for shops and finally found the one shop. Yeah, I was in Firth and Wilson at the point when I was starting to take some machining classes too. And I was just community college stuff, like um, just machine tool technology course, you know, lathe one, mill one, lathe two, mill two. And like some blueprint layout classes, just like, you know, basic stuff that kids would probably take in high school in the 80s, but that I was taking now at community college and got into like some CNC stuff. And then I actually ended up cutting it short. Like the the degree didn't really matter to me. You know, I just wanted to learn more about machining. And I had a couple instructors. I had this one old head dude who was really good and he had worked, you know, in machine shops his entire life. And he was just really cool. Just your typical, like, hard-ass kind of machinist. Knows all of these cool tricks. And I was the only one in there who really had machine tools and was actually using the things we were learning outside of class. So they were, you know, they're stoked on that, obviously, when they see someone who's, like, actually applying what they're teaching them. And I would bring in, you know, like, I would bring in, like, actual projects. I made, like, a lead screw for my cross slide on my lathe and... Things like that. And they're like, okay, cool. This is cool. You know, so they like kind of took a little favor to me since I was like really into it. Um, and I, I got a lot out of like those classes for sure. But then it sort of started to like, it sort of started to taper off. And a lot of the instructors just weren't in 2021 with what they were teaching. And there just wasn't like a great lesson plan when it came to the CNC stuff. And it's a lot of time, you know, when you're at this age and you're, you're taking time at the end of your day to go to community college and, and learn stuff. And I just felt like I wasn't really getting my money's worth for, yeah. for that end of it. When it started to get into the CNC stuff and I was like, man, this is a waste of time. Like I can't be coming out here a couple of times a week after my job or whatever I'm doing that day and just pissing my time away. So I didn't end up finishing the whole course. Like I said, I did like all of the manual machining classes and the blueprint and the layout stuff that I wanted to learn. But then there was sort of like these like remaining courses that were, weren't that important to me. And it was a little bit more busy work stuff to, to get this degree, which what well, doesn't really mean anything to me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, it was cool. And I, I definitely learned stuff from that. And I'm glad I, I did that. I wish I, I had that opportunity to do that kind of stuff in high school, really. Um, and then as far as the bicycle academy goes, yeah, I went there for a fillet brazing class and I'd already known how to fillet braze. And I was kind of like starting to figure out this other technique of fillet brazing, but I wasn't really sure of like all the little details about it. And they teach a style of brazing that Brian Curtis kind of popularized of Curtis bikes. And he does like this fillet braze TIG technique basically, which is, and he, does it so clean you know there's no one else that really even comes close to them other maybe a few guys but yeah so i really wanted to like kind of hone that in and learn that and i had a lot of questions about that stuff so i went to england and did that and they're in i think it's like the southwest in in firm which i've i've been to before because there's a company i used to ride to ride for uh charge bikes that was like based out in that area so i went out there and it's you know, it's a cool little village to stay in, super old. It's not far from Bath. Um, and I went there for like a week. I only took the class for a couple of days, but yeah, it was just a really cool experience. And it was, it was cool to learn that style of brazing. And those dudes have their, their, their teaching 
pretty dialed. Um, yeah. You know, people, there's just so many ways to braise. And I think there's like all these misconceptions with braising that a lot of people are taught from either like older frame builders or whoever. And, you know, like, oh, you have to sweat the joint and then you lay a fillet over it or this and vice versa and this and that. And it's like, there's, there's just a lot of like hearsay and questions up in the air, you know, about what people think is right and what's wrong and whatever. So, you know, they have a style that they teach and it works. So I know that that works and I feel pretty confident using that technique and it looks really well. You can braise a really clean joint. And yeah, it was just something I wanted to learn and I felt like it was worth the, the time and the money. And, you know, it was like a vacation for me as well to go yeah. out there and, and ride my ride my mountain bike and just have some fun. Yeah, um, that's awesome. You and, said you work there and like, you know, some of the BTR guys you teach there and they just have legit frame builders teaching classes there who are actually, you know, building bikes day in and day out for a living. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I would love to I would love to take pretty much any frame building class if I just could show up and it didn't conflict with my other ambitions in life and it didn't cost anything and like absolutely I'd take all of them. <laughs> um Yeah. But uh yeah, they they seem to do the the way that I've seen your fillet brazing and the which, you know, the style that I think you mostly picked up from that. And you had also you said the first thing you really did was hanging out with the in the square built shop and uh that guy took a frame building class with doug faddock i believe right i'm not sure actually where lance learned from um i think he did you went to doug uh, i mean i don't know what other things uh where other <laughs> what other sources he had because you know we don't all just learn from one place but doug faddock had a frame building class that i took which was my entry point into frame building and it was a lugged frame building class and doug has an assistant named herbie helm who's a couple years older than me and Herbie gave a demo of fillet brazing the one day. So we didn't learn to really do it ourselves, but I video recorded the demo and I watched that like a hundred times later and I practiced it. And that's how I taught myself. Fillet brazing was from that little demo video. Cause you know, back then there weren't right. any videos about that stuff on YouTube or anything. And so it was like, you know, you would lay a, like a pea sized blob of, of bronze and then you would do another one right after it and then you'd go back and flow the first two together and then you'd lay another one and then you'd flow you it was like forward and backward always kind of doing like a granular blob and then going back and smoothing them out and anyway uh it's a pretty slow approach and it looks a lot different than what i've seen some other people do and i haven't done fillet brazing in like five or six years now but Anyway, it's it's just a there, there are a lot of different ways, as you said, and I'm not convinced that the way that I learned is the fastest or the best or the strongest, but it definitely works. You know, it's a way. I think it would be really beneficial to learn from various people and you know kind of compare and contrast. Definitely, yeah. It's kind of like such an oddball welding style that's not really like it's not in use anymore, other than frame building and maybe like a few other weird industries. You know, so there's not a lot of information on it on like gas welding like that. So, yeah, no one really has any source to know, like, how to do this other than what they're learning from other people. And, yeah, like the technique you said is so different from, like, the way I do it. And, you know, I think the way that I do it is much – to me, it's, like, more similar to TIG welding almost in a way or, like, a continuous weld rather than, like, the start and stop method. And you can tell right away when someone does a start and stop method because there's a little pinhole in each and every bead after they stop – and do it, you know, and it doesn't go all the way through, but it's like, there's like a dip in the center of it. You can tell that's 
what they're doing. They're stopping and it cools and it creates that little divot in the center of it. Yeah. But yeah, Philip is really cool, man. I wish it, uh, I wish I did more of it now. I definitely TIG weld more. I really like Philip raising. It's fun. But, um, yeah, as everyone knows, it takes a long time to, to polish it up and make it look nice unless you, unless you leave it, you know, and you have to be really dialed to, to leave Philip raises on unfiled, you know, yeah. I would not leave messy Philip raises unfiled. <laughs> yeah. And I was always with my technique, it was pretty slow to lay it down. And I think at my best, I was starting to get comfortable with the technique I had, but but then I got a TIG welder and I got more serious about that. And I just, I don't know. I, I never was interested in TIG welding in the beginning. I only wanted to do lug work and like buy laminate sleeves and, and fillets and stuff. But after I got a TIG welder, I just, man, I was sold on that. I just think, I don't know, it's it's electric, you know. <laughs> it's, right. a, it's a very exciting, you're very in the moment. I mean, you could say the same about brazing. It's also just a lot cleaner. I kind of like being able to wear gloves and actually like, you know, touch the frame, perch my fingers on the frame and like not have to like soak the whole thing off later. I just kind of like become yeah. sort of a kind of a spoiled brat about getting dirty. I just don't really, <laughs> don't really like to do it. It's crazy how much faster TIG welding is, you know, like you're saying, soaking the frame or even just like, yeah, depending on if you're going to finish the fillet or not, but it's just so time consuming compared to if you sit down and TIG weld a frame from start to finish. Yeah. But it's, it's so much harder, you know? Well, I don't know, actually, I guess it depends on what your, your level of quality and what you want from a, a Philip braze is actually, sometimes I think Philip brazing cleanly is actually harder than TIG welding. Like if you were to do a, a, a Philip braze that looked perfect, right? Like stack of dimes all the way around. I think that's probably harder than TIG welding for, for me at least. Yeah. You know, because if you have a TIG weld and you're welding and like, you know, say the bead isn't totally straight or it's off a little bit, the puddle, like, you know, your hand shakes a little and the puddle's off. Like, you're, you're never going to notice that, right? But when you're, mm -hmm. you're Philip raising a magnified version of that, you're going to see every little imperfection if it's not totally on point, if you're just leaving it raw. You, you know? know what might be the, the parallel is like the Philip raising in order to leave it raw versus like you know, finish welding titanium. Uh, I don't know. Like when I see there's so, so, so many talented welders in this industry and I shouldn't just name one, but I don't know something about Brad Bingham's welds. Just, I can't get over it. Like they're so ridiculous. The ones he posts pictures of, we all know that you post pictures of the good ones, the especially good ones, but uh, you know, don't be fooled into thinking that everybody's welds are as good as the ones they post pictures of on the internet, but yeah, his welds are just, man, they're so even and like the, they follow the miter so well, they're so consistent. And there's a lot of people who can do that uh, pretty damn well. All, all the production welders at these titanium bike companies basically. But anyway, I'm, I'm a huge yeah. fan of his work. And I think like at my best, I can lay like a kind of a decent TIG weld in steel, but to, to leave one that's that consistent, I think is sort of like, <laughs> It's hard to, to have, like, your freeze patterns be, like, the finished look because, like, any little yeah. inconsistency, you can see it. It's pretty wild. I mean, when you say TIG welding, you definitely think of, you know, Brad Brad's welds for sure. Like, everybody in the bike industry, at least. But, yeah, pretty uh, pretty impeccable stuff. It's, like, you know, it's pretty flawless. You see that, and you're just like, fuck, man. Well, maybe in another 20 years, you know what I mean? But he, yeah. also, right, he worked for Moots and, like, Ken Erickson, right, for a long time. Yeah. So. 
you know, if you're just pumping out production bikes, then yeah, if you can just sit down and weld every single day and not have to screw around with uh, cutting tubing or machining a fixture mm-hmm. every time you want to do or like them, that, that would be great to just do that and get really, really, really dialed at welding. But when you're frame building, when you're starting your own brand and, and learning to frame build, that's not the case. Yeah. You know, the welding is such a little portion of all the other crap that you have to do and, and get through. Yeah. And I mean, it's not even just the other fabrication steps. I mean, I feel like a lot of times it's more the, the business crap and it's the marketing stuff and customer emails and, you know, man, like, like for me, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I guess you could say I'm a CNC machinist, but it's like, man, so much more of what I do is like other operations stuff than it is actually, you know, programming or running the machines or something. And, uh, it's not the end of the world, but you know, a lot of times I would kind of just rather be machining. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of different hats to wear for sure. And I think until you fully like commit yourself to do this pretty much full time, you don't realize how many hats you actually have to wear and you actually have to have customer service and respond to people and you have to do the books or pay somebody to do the books. And yeah, it's just, there's so much stuff. It's, it's crazy. It's almost too, it's almost too much for one person, but yeah. you know, no one really can't pay somebody else to do it when you're a small frame builder. So yeah. When I was, um, I was talking to Adam Procise. He was the, I haven't done a podcast in like six months or something, which is embarrassing. But when I was talking to him, I think off of the podcast, but anyway, I was, maybe it was on the podcast talking just about how, you know, with CNC machining, it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to make 60 of this part. So like, let me buy that carbide drill. That's going to really save a lot of cycle time or something, you know, like you, you, you can see where you can make a little gain on something by like equipping yourself appropriately. And the thing I did, uh, I built a bike frame for my girlfriend this summer and, um, and it just, every single step of it was so tough, even though I've built like 20 bike frames and I know a fair amount about it and I have a machine shop and some frame building tools and stuff, but it was still really slow because it's like you basically like in frame building, there's like a thousand steps and in order to be really efficient, you need a trick up your sleeve and you need a tool and you need uh, like utter confidence in your process at every point of that thousand step process. And it's really hard to like stop what you're doing every time you're building a bike and build three new tools and to like make three little quick reference sheets and tape them up at the machine and all that stuff that would actually give you the tools and the confidence and the experience so that at any point throughout the thousand step process, you just went bing, bang, boom through every step that's how people get to where they can build like uh, Carl Strong said he can build a steel frame in like, you know, two and a half hours or whatever. That's how that happens. But like, it's really hard when you're getting started because you can't just optimize one step. There's like a thousand steps. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. And it's, it's really so important if you're going to do this as a business to me, at least to have some kind of process and some kind of dedicated machines that only do one step or only do the pain in the ass thing that you don't want to do every single time. It's like, you have to have it set up that way, man. I don't know how people do it without that. And I don't know how people do custom shit like every single time. It's so nuts to me, like yeah. switching from like, all right, I'm going to do tab dropouts. Now I'm going to do hooded dropouts. Now I'm going to do BMX style dropouts. Now I'm going to do this. It's like, I don't know how anybody gets that, like gets through stuff like that. It drives me insane. Like I've been, I try and keep stuff like really simple and, and all, 
you know, based around these certain parameters and using the same parts over and over again. So I can kind of streamline things and like work through it a little bit better. And it still takes me a while. You know, I'm not at the point where I'm, I'm flying through stuff yet, but I definitely have been setting up more machines for, for one-off operations and, and things like that. But yeah, otherwise, if you don't have that stuff, I don't know how people do it. And I don't even know how people do stuff with, with non-specialized tooling, like with off the shelf stuff, you know, if yeah. you're just buying like off the shelf seat stay fixture or off the shelf chain stay fixture, like none of that shit is ever going to work for what you want to do. You know, you're going to have to yeah. rig it up or you're going to have some parts for it to actually function in the way that works for your building style. Yeah. Um, I, I really think of like much off the shelf stuff that would work even, and I do simple stuff, you know, I mm-hmm. keep it really simple with like trying to do all, the same size hooded dropout and a lot of the parts can switch between a road bike or a mountain bike. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the stuff that like kind of really gets me excited is when you see somebody set up and you're like, Oh shit, they're so dialed. They have, you know, this crazy little setup for just this one operation that they're doing. And you're like, fuck, that's so smart. You know, it's yeah. so cool to see this, that, that crazy little like fixture they made or, or something like that. And tying this all together, I remember when I, when I li- like lived in Santa Barbara, I got to see Rick Hunter's shop in Santa Cruz. And like seeing that for the first time was mind-blowing, man. He just had so many cool tools that he had made and like, stuff that you like, would never think of. You know what I mean? But he's been building frames for a long time. So eventually, you know, you have to make something for it. But he had one of the cool shops. That I, that I got to see for sure. And that was like, that kind of lit a fire under my ass in a way where I was like, man, I really want to learn a lot more about machining and, you know, be able to make these kind of fixtures for myself and, and figure out my own process. Yeah. So that, that kind of stuff is just really, really cool to see. I really respect all those builders that are, I mean, those just machine all their own components too, which is insane. Like manually machining all of that stuff and then, making the tools for it to work and then making the bike. It's like, it's, it's dude, it's so crazy. It makes my nuts hurt just thinking about how much work it is. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Like, it's so cool though. You know, everybody wants to be that eventually. Everybody wants to figure that or not, maybe not everybody, but it's, it's just really cool. Like tonic fab too. If you look at that dude, stuff, yeah. it's just crazy. How much stuff they manually machine, like the old way. And you're like, damn, these dudes are head, you know, they've got it, they've got it dialed. And like a lot of times nobody, like they don't even really get that much coverage. And you're just like, they're still just like cranking away at it, doing it and in their shops and the stuff that gets coverage is like, just kind of bullshit. You know, you see like the same, you know, you see the same stuff over <laughs> again, like the same, well, yeah, the paint jobs, but more like, it's like you have this like connect bike, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, I'm going to use this part and this part. And like, you know, 15 other frame builders were all using the same thing. And I, I get why they do it because at the end of the day, like if you want to make money, you know, mm-hmm. it's pretty hard to make all of your own parts and build the frames and have, you know, be able to do all that in a time frame where, where it makes money. So like, that's impressive too. So I understand why everybody uses like more off the shelf parts and they're dialed, you know, all the Paragon stuff is so good. No, none of us are ever going to be able to make stuff that good in our shop. So it's nice to have like the repeatability, but when someone really like makes their own dropout or even at least like designs their own dropout and gets it manufactured, like that's a really cool detail that you notice immediately if you're a frame builder. Yeah. And yeah, those small little things where you're just like, man, these, 
these people have been doing this for so long and they're just, they've got it figured out, you know, like those are the frame builders that like, that get me so excited. And that's the stuff now that I look at, I'm like, this, this makes me like really want to build bikes still, you know, cause there's a lot of times where people or where I myself, like you just get bummed. You know what I mean? You're like, dude, you're trying so hard and so hard and shit comes out fucked up when you're learning <laughs> from the start. And you're, you're just like, Oh my God, dude, like when the fuck is this ever going to come out straight? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so then you go through those periods where you're like, you're, you're learning and you're figuring it out and you're learning your process. But you know, you, like looking at that stuff gets me stoked. That kind of keeps me going still. And, and seeing people who, who build frames and who ride too a lot is, is a really cool thing. Cause that's also a really difficult balance. I feel like when you're frame building is like actually riding your bike still mm-hmm. and not just being in the shop for like, 12 hours a day and just going home and going to bed and then coming back. Yeah. I think it's really important to still get out and, and ride your bike and like test your bikes you're building and figure out what feels good and break your bikes that you're building when you're first starting. You know what I mean? I'm not saying you should go break, break your bike and fall on your face, but you know, you gotta, you gotta know if you're not an engineer, you've got to figure it out some way. Right. And that's like the caveman way to figure it out. Like, okay, I'm going to ride this and it's either going to hold up or it's, it's not, or it's going to crack or it's going to fail in this weird place. So the rear end's going to bend because I squished the tubing too much and, and this and that. And yeah, that, that kind of stuff is, is so important. I feel like I just went off on a tangent, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, what you're saying about off the shelf tooling too. I mean, I guess that's what I make now for a living is predominantly not custom tooling for frame builders, but it's uh you don't make like fixtures or seat safe fixtures you're making like a bender is not like yeah it's a tool but it's not like a fixture for welding you yeah, know and no. the frame fixture but it's not like that's not going to change a whole lot but the rear end stuff is like so exactly different builder to builder you know you're not making any of that yet so i do think the stuff that you're doing is yeah. is not really off egg in a way like that stuff is yeah so when you look at the landscape of like seat stay and chain stay fixtures and stuff it's so freaking hard to design anything because i feel like the way that you would go about designing those tools is completely dependent on the kinds of bikes that you're going to build and so it's it's just really tough and if you look historically at like all the tools that we've seen um like the stuff that uh jeff makes at sputnik it i mean that was kind of born out of like the indie fab shop you know that's where jeff was really making tools as i understand it from the beginning and they had a process and they built bikes a certain kind of way and they made these like cold rolled steel fixtures that had just as much adjustment as you needed needed and they were meant to be like burly something that wasn't going to wear out through thousands and thousands of bikes and stuff that was like relatively simple and economical to make on the machinery they had and you can see it in the design of these fixtures that they made that like that was the goal and they executed it beautifully and it's good stuff. And then if you look at like, you know, lots and lots of people have like the anvil chainstay and seat stay fixtures. And those were quite a bit different. They were quite a bit prettier. You know, they're like actually anodized aluminum with fillets and rounded edges and stuff. And they had, uh, you know, colors that were anodized and they're more versatile. So there's like more axes of adjustment. And there was, you know, whether you did hooded dropouts or tab style dropouts, or you had round chain stays, or you had oval chain stays, or you had tapered chain stays, really could accommodate a much wider variety of tubing. And yet I felt like based on what I could see from the outside looking in, that if I was going to have a chain stay fixture, I kind of wanted the one 
that maybe would sacrifice versatility, but that was going to be more robust. And so like, I don't know, four or five years ago or something, I think 2017, I guess, I bought the Sputnik Chainstay fixture and and I got it. And then I was like, oh man, now I'm going to have to like buy or build a whole bunch of these different Chainstay blocks to make it fit. And anyway, the point <laughs> is, it's like, it's a really tough balance to have um, like, there's just so many different kinds of Chainstays. Seat stays are bad yeah, enough. Chain some... stays are really bad. And especially when you throw in disc brakes and flat mount and the way that people are trying to like use the chain stay fixture to both miter the bottom bracket end of the chain stays, but then also maybe miter the dropout end of the chain stays or maybe hold it for like, you know, making those counter bores or whatever for the, um, those miter notches for the flat mount. And it's just, it's like a ridiculously difficult design proposition to make it because every new axis of adjustment that you make or every new interchangeable part to accommodate a different thing legitimately adds cost and typically decreases like the rigidity of the setup. And it's just like all these competing compromises and you're going to try and make something that, you know, like if it only suits two different people, then you're never going to sell any and defray the cost of, of design. So you need to make it pretty anyway. It's just like, it's kind of an impossible thing to make a great one. You can make one that works for a bunch of people well enough, but like, it's really hard to make a great one. Yeah. There, there's so many variables like you're saying and yeah, trying to tackle that as a machinist just seems like headache inducing to be, to try and figure out what's going to work for, for everyone. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of times if you're just building for yourself, it's probably a lot easier to just build a fixture that's going to solve your one problem. And then later, if you decide that you need a different process and you're, tool doesn't support it probably just build another one that like because <laughs> like trying at the beginning to think ahead about every possible version of these stays that you could accommodate it's it's like mind-numbing it's it's uh it's you get a sort of paralysis about like <laughs> how are you even gonna how are you even gonna design it to make it work with all these and still be good you know like it wouldn't be that hard to make it kind of kind of work but like you want it to set up quickly and be rigid and be very accurate and support the tubes well and all these things yeah definitely and i went through that same thing you know when i was trying to figure things out and like make my own tools i was like all right well it's gotta it's gotta fit this and it's gotta fit that and this and that and it's like all right you know i'm just gonna make it for this one style that i'm doing it's gonna work with this dropout and these style of stays that i use and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna focus on that one thing and try and make this tool and try and make it work too. That's a whole other thing. You can try and incorporate like these ten different features into it and build it and try and use it, and it doesn't work well. And then you're like, well, shit, I did like three days trying to machine this, and it's actually just a turd of a fixture. Uh -huh. So I need to go back to the board and like you're manually machining this. But um, yeah, the variables are definitely endless. I think it's it's important to figure out what you want to build and, and make a fixture based around just that one thing, like you were saying. Yeah. Like you would almost be better off just having like a, a breadboard, right. With like a bunch of tapped holes in it and shit and maybe like one sliding rail and just figure the rest out kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that would at least like, be versatile. It wouldn't be very fast, but it would be really versatile at least. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's also cool to see like this, you're saying like, Jeff from Sputnik just uses like cold rolled steel and super basic. Like I, I love that style. I kind of love kinda... it too. I feel like commercially it's difficult because like for better or worse, you know, your customer base and the tool biz, like they like things to look pretty and I don't blame anybody like that. I like pretty things too, but um, cold rolled steel, there's like something elemental about it. It's totally badass. It's just like, it's not any fancier than it needs to be. 
it's probably going to rust if no, you don't it, wipe it with a little bit of oil from time to time. But like, it's a good material and it like it it does the job. Yeah, it's, it's cheap and it's pretty flat. Yeah, and yeah, you can get offcuts of it pretty cheap too. So yeah, it's it's definitely I definitely like that style for sure. <laughs> yeah, kinda the down down and dirty style clamps all over it, whatever you need to make it work. But I appreciate all, you know, all the time and effort that goes into like the pretty CNC anodized stuff as well. Yeah. Um, it's just me personally. I'm not doing any of that. You know, I just have manual machines. So like what I can do is more in that vein of, of like just down and dirty style. It, it's also really cool to see when people make welded fixtures. That's really cool to me. Yeah. Um, it just seems like it cuts down so much time. I mean, the accuracy is definitely way harder, but I've seen like some cool rear end, like swing arm jigs that are just like steel tube welded together. And I guess if you did some finished machining on like the faces you needed to, mm-hmm. that's always like a really cool alternative to see people kind of like to do that, you know, is to use like steel beam and then weld on cold rolled and then machine the surfaces that need to be um, actually flat. So I don't know. There's a million different ways that you could cut it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there are. And I think a lot of times, like if you build with sub-assemblies, it's like a lot of the different fixtures that you use, depending on how they're used and when, they may or may not need any real degree of precision. Like, you know, like only the things that need precision need precision. And so like uh, there's certain kinds of operations where like, let's say you're taking this subcomponent and then you're doing this operation and now it's ready for this next piece well if it wasn't you know produced with some degree of repeatability then you have downstream issues so okay so i guess that is a precision process but sometimes you know you're just you're doing a certain step and then you put it through some other like precision mitering fixture and you're you know like let's say your initial cut length of the tube you could be plus or minus, you know, five millimeters or something. It wouldn't affect. So, it, you know, when you're designing all these little custom tools, when you know what the end use is and you know how it gets used, uh, not everything needs to be precision. And, and that gives you a lot of latitude. And it's just like that with every tool, you know, like every part of the process, you know what matters and what doesn't. And so you can spend your time where you need to. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think when I first started building my own tools, I was so focused on like having shit be within, you know, one foul or this and that. And a lot of times like you're saying it, it, it doesn't even matter. It has to be precise. Right. But like, if you're just making like kind of crude fixture, it's almost more important to just have shit on center than anything I've found, you know, keeping everything on that center line. Mm-hmm. So your rear aren't coming out crooked or this and that, that's almost more important I've found. But again, yeah, I understand where you need to have certain tolerances, but like I was so obsessed with things being like yeah. so perfect manually machining them which is also like a lot of times it's, it's difficult if you're working on like trash machines that you got for 500 bucks <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Ways are all, uh, then like, you know, like that's not even, maybe some people could do it, but like someone who's learning, like that's not really the most achievable thing, you know? So it's like kind of unrealistic and you're like, you're just stressing yourself out and like almost wasting time in some ways trying to make these things that are sort of out of your, out of your league in a way. Yeah. So I don't know, like you said, just understanding what needs to actually be precision and and what doesn't need to be as precise or whatever. Yeah. I think that's a big part of like learning any craft or trade or whatever is just learning, you know, like in the beginning, at least for someone, I don't know, for someone like me, it's like, I have a deep respect for most of the things that I even bother to do. Maybe some people, they just want to do it because it'd be fun. But for me, it's like, I really want to do good work and I don't really know 
which corners I can cut and still create a quality product. But I, I know that I'm committed to a quality product. So like I don't cut mm-hmm. any corners. So I do everything as, as well as I possibly can. And as you repeat the process over and over again, you typically start to learn, you know, what actually matters and what doesn't, or, or I guess you could say the other's true is if you built a crappy product over and over again, but you kept fixing the worst part of it, then maybe you would get somewhere where you knew that you could cut these nine corners, but you definitely couldn't cut these other six or whatever. But uh, right. yeah, it's like that comes through experience. Cause if, if you just want to make something good, but you don't really know what you're doing, then you're going to, you're going to waste a lot of time making unnecessary parts. Good. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah. I feel like we could, we could talk about tooling and geek out about this for a long time. So, uh, so let me know, let me know if I'm going on too much. Well, tell it. me, tell me about LaMarche. Uh, is it LaMarche bicycle co? Yeah. I'm just calling it LaMarche bike co. That's awesome. Um, and uh, so, what do you yeah, wanna... I mean, I know you and I know the bikes that you make. Uh, what is the vision for the company? Uh, I've seen you make commuter bikes, I've seen, which I love. This, Like, I was telling you this at the Philly Bike Expo, but I feel like uh, as I was doing frame building as sort of a hobbyist for years, I was slowly kind of zeroing in on on like a certain kind of aesthetic and a certain kind of bike that I thought was exciting and cool. And I don't think I ever really got there fully. I was just like a lot of frame builders. It's just kind of experimenting and kind of getting up to speed with stuff and playing with process. But when I see the bikes that you're making and a couple other people's, but I think when I see yours, it's like, that's kind of in a lot of ways, what I imagine I, I would have wanted to to do with my own brand. And I think it, I think it looks good aesthetically, just like the paint and the graphics. But I also think the build kits kind of reflect and like the geometry and just a lot of what you're doing. I feel like it, like, I feel like I see a brand really kind of materializing and congealing and it's good. And I'm a fan of it, but like, what do you think is the essence of that brand and what you're trying to do? Thanks. Well, I think ultimately I'm just trying to keep things like pretty simple. You know, you can see it from the bikes. There's not a ton of flourishes on them. There's a couple little things that I do that are different. Um, they're powder coated. So it's, it's pretty basic paint. But again, like riding BMX and coming from that world where everything is, is pretty simple and just powder coated and, and has a cool logo on it definitely reflects my style and the aesthetic that I like. The branding end of it is, is really important to me. And I kind of obsessed over that a ton when I was even just getting like the word mark made. And I had a design studio. My buddy has a design studio called Mellow Gold. And a friend that I rode with kind of introduced me to them. And I had cataloged like all of this stuff that I really, really liked aesthetically logos from bikes to machines, to dirt bikes, to formula one, to whatever, you name it. We are just old logos on like weird Euro olive oil bottles and things like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, I really kind of geeked out over the design end of it. And that's like really important to me. And I think a lot of people skip that with frame building and they get so focused on the technical aspects of it. And then they just slap on like, you know, I don't want to like trash talk anybody's style, but they just put on like a, whatever their last name on it and whatever font that it is from like, you know, bike cat or something like that. And it's just, it goes from, it just, it just doesn't look right for me. Yep. You know, like it's a whole pack. For me. Like I, I grew up skating and riding BMX and into all these other things that had really sick brands, you know what I mean? You wanted to buy, whatever BMX shirt or skate shirt that you could get that had a cool graphic on it. 
or, you know, it was funny too, which is another thing. It's like having it be fun and funny is like, you never see that in the frame building world, really very mm -hmm. rarely, at least there's no like comedic side to things. There's no like, oh, I'm out with my friends in the woods screwing around. And there's like this funny character that's riding for this company. You know what I mean? Like when you watch videos, there's always some nut job that was riding for a company. And that was like part of the, the, the company's identity and like why people were into it and why they wanted to ride those products or have those things. And that's such a cool thing to me, you know, yeah. and the nostalgia behind it, like still rings true for me. And it's just really cool to make a brand and make your brand. You know, it's my last name. I couldn't come up with a good name. So I just decided to use my last name. <laughs> Everything I came up with sounded corny and I would, I would sit on it for like a week and I was like, nah, man, this this is just so corny. Like, yeah, and that's ultimately, how names like, are. Yeah, I was like, I'm just going to use my last name. It's it's It sounds good. It's fine. And obviously the vibe of it is like a little 70s looking and yeah, it just kind of plays into all the stuff that I'm interested in, whether it be art, music, bikes, skating, whatever, you know. And yeah, that's the, the culmination that you come up with to make your identity and your mark. And I think that's that's really important when you're trying to sell stuff and trying to, to actually create an identity. Yeah. And it's getting there. You know, I appreciate when people notice that stuff a lot, you know, when people are like, oh, man, the design is so cool. I'm like, thank you. You know, I like luckily I have, I have friends who are really good at design and, and put up with me when I was so anal about every little part of the logo and things like that. But it, it really does matter. You know, that's like when people see shit like that, they really bite into it and like, they like it. You look at brands that are iconic and people just love it because of the logo, you know, it doesn't even need to be a crazy complex bike or anything. It's almost better simple with just like a simple logo on it. Yeah. So yeah, that's where I stand with that. As far as like the geometries and things like that go, with the mount, I, I'm kind of just doing two bikes at the moment. Um, if someone really wants something custom that's kind of within like the realm of what I can build, then I'm open to that. But I'm I'm trying to just do sort of semi-production models so things don't get too crazy, and I can you know continue to build that process and work within that and handle the workload and deliver a bike quickly to someone. So I'm doing a mountain bike that's a fun, jumpy mountain bike. It's a hardtail. It's not really like a long and low bike like everybody's building. It's got a higher bottom bracket because that was, you know, what makes dirt jumpers and BMX bikes fun to ride for me. Mm -hmm. And I made a lot of prototypes with, you know, really long, slack, low, all that stuff that everybody's selling right now. And I made a handful of them. It's not like I, I made one bike. I made a handful of bikes like with different geometries and I took notes and figured out what I liked and like, Oh, well this one doesn't really pull up so easily. Like, yeah, it can fly downhill, but when you fly downhill and you need to pull up because there's like, you know, a little Creek crossing or like a gully or something that you kind of want to manual through. It's like, pr it's pretty hard to do when the bike is really long and low mm -hmm. and you just start to like pick and choose these attributes that you want. And you know, ultimately that's kind of what I went up. I went, went for on this bike was, you know, something that someone may say is like outdated, but not all the way in, in my eyes, you know, it's like the bikes that I'm building have like a pretty modest reach number on them mm. compared to a lot of modern bikes. Um, so like a pretty regular reach. And then, like I said, I've, I've been building them with higher bottom brackets just because it's, it makes it feel like a hardtail. It's so much more playful. And I'm trying to just keep it simple and do like a simple mountain bike that you can go and jump 
and ride or, you know, ride XC if you want on it too. But I definitely build it more to kind of jump and play around and whatever, go dig jumps in the woods with your friends. You could, I take it to the bike park all the time. I, I ride everything on it really. So I'm doing that and then trying to do sort of like a do it all. I called it like a town and country bike just because it's a gravel bike. Just, I don't know, kind of turned into this like gross term and world where you're like, yeah, it's a gravel bike. And I don't know. It's just, it's goofy mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Jump the shark bike. maybe. <laughs> yeah. It's just, oh man, you call it whatever you want. You can build it up so many different ways. That it doesn't yeah. even really matter. If you, you know, fit a 48 with fenders or a 2.2, which is mountain bike territory at that point. So that's awesome. I've been just sticking between those two bikes for the time being. And then like doing some fun stuff on the side, um, that I'll have out in a little bit, like just some fun prototype stuff. I'm working on a folding bike Whoa. or like a travel. Yeah. It's not really a folding bike. Cause it's like more of like a Brompton or like an old Raleigh that folds in half, but kind of like a travel bike that collapses on itself folds into itself um but uses more bmx components too so yeah i don't know just trying to build fun simple things and not get too i'm not into like overly tech bike standards um so i don't do like a ton of that stuff i haven't really done a ton of flat mount bikes we built a lot of those at Stinner, and i like hated doing it so much and I, i understand why why people want it um but yeah I don't really want like a flat mount hydraulic brake on a, on a bike that I'm going to like go touring with or be out on long rides with, <laughs> you know, I just want like a simple mechanical disc brake and it yep. works so well. I don't I, for me, it like blows my mind when people want like crazy electronic shifting and, you know, DI2 and all that stuff. I'm just like, I, I get it. It's cool. Some people really like technology, but for me, the last thing I want is to like have to worry about having a battery to charge on my bike. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you're out, like, I, I know that this doesn't happen all the time. If you're out on a ride and your battery's dead, that's going to suck. Yeah. Yeah, I have a flashlight <laughs> that I I adore, and the battery still goes dead all the time, and it drives me nuts. It's like every little, it's like our lives are so complicated. There's like, there's just like always something that's wrong in yeah. our place. Just, you know, it's supposed to be simple, so. That's why you it, specialize it goes, in fixies, right? <laughs> yeah. It goes back to the BMX thing again. It's like all you needed to fix your bike was like a 17 mil socket and usually one or two Allen keys maybe. And that was it. And you're good to go ride. Now it's like, I don't know. I don't want to have an insane like tool collection with me while I'm riding. I just want like the bare basics. Yeah. If anything does break. <laughs> yeah. But I, I understand that's not everything. Yeah. So I just try and like, this is my ideology. I understand if you want these other components, we can definitely build around that. But I always try and push for, for simplicity where it fits. I love hydraulic brakes on a mountain bike. It's, it's really sick, but I just think it's kind of goofy on a road bike sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah, simplicity, um, good branding and design. Yeah. Just a, a nice product that, you, like, anybody can really look at and be into. Not even necessarily just a bike person, like, someone who doesn't know a ton about bikes and it's just like, you know, I really like the way this looks. It kind of speaks to me in that way. Like I'm, I'm not like a tech bike guy and I have customers like that. People are just like, can you just tell me like what you recommend for this? And it's like, yeah, you mentioned like, you know, there's a build kit that everybody loves. Like white cranks are really sick. They're simple to work with. They have a pretty wide chain line. So they, they clear a lot easier on a lot of bikes. 
and I really like silver components and like kind of more of that classic look, but Mm -hmm. it's nice to have some modern standards, but not so crazy. And it's nice to have the components look in a classic style, Paul, white industries, all that kind of stuff just looks so good and it works great. Yeah. Yeah. Something you were saying Uh, about dropouts and you know, the head tubes and all that (laughs) stuff and like that desire to make all of the little parts either yourself or to make them to your spec uh, is something that really resonates with me in that YouTube series where I built a mountain bike. I had a Paragon head tube, but I still had to put it on my lathe and support it on the tailstock and just change the outside profile. Cause like, I know exactly what you mean. And there's no shame in using the Paragon head tubes. They're really beefy, sometimes too beefy, but they're really good and they're, they're readily available and it's so much easier, you know, but like, anyway, I just didn't want that look, you know, it's like, it's just like the, it's like the connects bike. Yep. Totally. Yeah. You just want to have it be your design. It really is those little tweaks mm-hmm. that like, kind of make it stand out because it's pretty hard to make a bike stand out unless you're doing, you know, some really different stuff. It's, it's pretty difficult to make it stand out yeah. um, from a lot of the stuff. Otherwise, you know, like you do a wild paint job, but I'm talking about just the like, the actual tubes of the bike, like the two triangles, Yep. you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult to make it look different. And it's like those little tiny details, like, Oh, all right. I just want a little bit different radius on this on the edge of this head tube, or I want the yeah. ring of it to look different, you know? And yes, yeah, so I get it. I think it's just, I think it's just, you know, being a frame builder and wanting to make your own stuff. And especially if you're into like the machining side of it, you know, like you really want to make your own stuff and pulling, like I was going back to. Um, but yeah, when you notice those little components like that, it really, kind of makes like the whole product complete. Um, yeah, I think like when you change a little radius or a little angle or the proportions between some different surfaces, it just completely changes the look of these subtle things. You know, I can imagine, you know, anything from cable guides to, you know, the, (laughs) even the tube diameters and every little thing that you do, it just changes the, and even if you're not conscious of it, but like they all just have, they, they create together like a look of things and a sense of things. And so it's a, it's pretty satisfying. Yeah. Like what you're saying about, you know, Rick Hunter and tonic fab. And, uh, I, I always wanted to do that. I wanted to have as much of my own stuff and really get, you know, just the, everything just dialed in or like if you get like the Paragon machine works hooded dropouts, well, some of those have a really super chunky flange. So you can, you work with bigger tubes, which is necessary sometimes. And some of them are really tiny, which is a nice tidy look. If you have like small tip diameter road chain stays and seat stays. And ideally I think what I would want if I was using hood and dropouts is I would want to have exactly the right size. I would want them to be just big enough that I could land my TIG weld on there safely and no more. And so like, that'd be a good thing to customize or like the profile of that hood so that it doesn't extend past where it needs to. And so that like just the shape of everything and the, uh, you know, and like with the bends, that's a big thing that I saw with my tube bender, but like, you know, just giving you the control to really tailor it and to put everything right where you want it so that it, it just, you know, like, I, I don't know, like probably a lot of the customers don't notice that stuff exactly, or they don't, specifically notice it. I feel like it's an acquired taste to like really be able to appreciate every detail, but you know, having for me, having spent a bunch of time admiring all these other builders work and trying to build good stuff myself, I really notice all that little stuff 
And it's, yeah, that's always was kind of the goal for me was to get to where I could have all that exactly the way I wanted it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, people definitely notice it. Like, look at, you know, people buy Rivendell's for a reason. Yeah. You know, all the little flourishes on them. Like, people love that. But yeah. when they're not as outspoken as, as like a carved lug like that, yeah, it might be more difficult for somebody to notice all of them. But I think they'll notice the overall look of the bike. Maybe not every little detail, but it, like you said, just the subtle things like tubing diameter, tapers, things like that really do make it look a lot different and kind of make it special to, to what you're making. Yeah. Um, when do you think you're going to get a CNC machine in your shop? That's what I want to know. I'm not going to get a CNC in my current shop because I don't want to have to move that in a year. Um, <laughs> but maybe when I have my own building or space that I, I know that I'm pretty secure in, I think it'd be pretty cool to get a small CNC mill for sure. Again, like I think it's really cool to prototype stuff manually. I don't know how those dudes do that for all of their bikes. It's so crazy. Um, so it'd be pretty cool to like prototype a dropout and, you know, either manually machine it or 3d print it or just design it in fusion or SolidWorks, whatever, and make it in shop. That would be really sick. And yeah. You know, some people go totally nuts and they're making like bottle bosses and things like that. But just to get like, you know, dropouts and head tubes and like a few other things like that would be yeah. pretty cool. I think I have to decide if I'm going to get a CNC mill or a CNC lathe first and what makes more sense. Yeah. Um, I'm also like still in the process of learning 3D modeling, which I struggle with so much. So I'm, I'm still like, you know, picking my way through Fusion and, and trying to learn the tool set and watch as many videos as I can. But I think once I get to the point where I can model everything like pretty quickly and like start to model tooling in fusion, that's what I'm really excited about is like being able to model the tooling in there. I think once I get to the part point where I'm really comfortable with that, it's going to light a fire under my ass to be like, all right, now I definitely (laughs) want to get a seat to make all this stuff. Absolutely. (laughs) Or at least, you know, like get a job shop to do it or, or something. But Yeah. Yeah, because uh, yeah, I, I see the skill set that you have and having spent some time in you, the community college classes that you did and all that, I, I'm sure that you'd do well with it if you got your hands on it for very long. And I, I think it would enable you to make some really cool bike stuff and some cool tools for yourself. So hope to see that happen at some point. Uh, but also, you know, there's there's the three prongs now or the four prongs maybe. There's There's CNC milling and turning i guess i think milling if you're going to get a machine i always suggest to people to get a cnc mill because the cnc lathe doesn't do doesn't typically do a whole lot for you unless you have production ambitions like of like larger volumes but but regardless there's the there's the cnc milling and turning world but then there's also the laser cutting world which is really exciting and or water jet which is the same sort of thing where it's like a two axis shape that you cut out of you know plate or sheet goods and then there's the 3D printing in metals. And I feel like when, when you start to tap into CAD software, like usually Fusion 360 is what I recommend because it's there's a big user community and it's pretty affordable and sometimes kind of free depending on the license that you can pull off. But anyway, you know, like with what you're doing, are you specifically interested in 3D printed parts or uh, have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I've looked at that. Obviously that stuff is, is becoming more and more and more popular. I kind of hate the way the 3D printed parts look, to be honest. I think it's really cool. Um, I remember first seeing, like, I remember seeing some cast BMX yokes, too, that I was really into. 
Mm-hmm. And for some reason to me, I don't know why, like the casting has more appeal. I think like once you pay the, <laughs> like the pooling cost, right. And then it's so cheap to reproduce it. Yeah. But I don't know the, the censored like 3d printed stuff. It seems really expensive for yeah. small scale. I mean, it's like, you look at the stuff that, that Provo cycles is doing. That's pretty wild. You know, like he definitely utilizes it so much and it looks really good on his bikes. But I think sometimes it looks kind of hokey in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems like it's like somebody said this on, on Instagram the other day. I think Zach Amigo said like, it's like future lugs basically, which is so true. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty cool to see what you can do with it. I think, I don't know. A lot of it just looks ugly right now. I think it could look cool. Um, it's a little scary. I mean, I know you can do like a lot of lattice supports in it and I, I don't know enough about it personally, but mm-hmm. It seems a little bit nerve-wracking. I'd be, I'd want to try it on my own bikes and, and prototype it for sure, and see and really push it. You know, and like be like, can I break this thing or you know, how is it going to hold up? Um, I just got a 3D printer though, so I've been like That's messing around awesome. with some little plastic. That'll really yeah, kick your so ass about still... the CAD modeling. Yeah, yeah. I figured if I'm like trying to learn Fusion, having the 3D printer will be really great to like make some of the weird little tools and things like that, that I have in my mind to, you know, be able to instantly prototype them is, is pretty cool and, and model it and all that. So I'm stoked on that. Like I said, I've got to get on the fusion a little bit more and get cranking. Yeah. But I'll give a yeah, little, what do you think about all that stuff? Like, I'll give a little yokes, plug right? for 3d printed stuff right here, which is just that if you have a plastic 3d printer in your shop, I think mine retails for 400 bucks or something, but Anyway, you can get them cheaper and you can certainly spend more money. And it's just really cool because it challenges you in a design way to, to think differently. And for me, like I can CNC machine all sorts of stuff. And what's hard is like internal features that are complex and like relatively hollow things and things that are hard to support while you're machining them. They get flimsy. And there's a certain set of considerations that make things hard to build with machining. And so I'm used to designing for machining. Well, then you get this different kind of machine, the 3d printer, and it has, it, it can do certain things really easily, but then it struggles with other stuff. And so it just kind of challenges you to, to think differently about design stuff. And then it's almost free to make a print. Once you have the printer, the, the filament is very inexpensive and it takes a long time, but it's very low of your input. So it's a really cool thing to have around. My favorite thing to do with 3d printer is like organizational stuff around the shop is to like make little mm-hmm. racks and holders and caddies. But another thing that I've done, and I think this could be big for frame builders is like, for instance, uh, there was a thing, it's almost like a water bottle boss hole drill jig that I made that was 3d printed and you lay it on a square tube for a thing that we do. And you could use a punch or a marker on these little holes that are in the 3d printed plastic marker. And then it allows you to mark some holes and you can, but it'd be cool for layout. You know, if you had some tools for like, let's say you were manually drilling all the holes in your bottom bracket shell and you needed to lay out center line or whatever spacing for those, well, you could 3D print a tool per your specification. And there's just like a hundred things like that where you can, if you can dream it, you can usually build it and it costs like nothing. And then if the tool fails because plastic wasn't tough enough, well, then you at least had a chance to play with it and now you can try it and, you know, you can make one out of metal or something. And I just think they're so cool. I don't see them used a whole lot in frame building and I, I get excited when I hear about other frame builders bringing them into their shops. 
yeah, there's there's a lot of cool little things you could definitely do with it. And I'm I'm kind of like surprised that more people haven't taken advantage of it for making like those little tools or drill jigs or you know, there's like a lot of stuff that doesn't even need to be aluminum or steel. But yep. like you said, perfect example, just a drill jig. Like you can make a water bottle drill jig so easily that way yeah. and buy the two the two um, bushes from McMaster Car yeah. and just yeah. pop them in printing while you're working in the shop so it's like you know it's nice to not have to take the time to make that tool like you would typically to manually machine it or cnc it and just have it running while you're actually doing other work you need to get done um you should check take a look at uh or from btr he just made this oh, pretty yeah. wild instay fixture that used yep. like a couple 3d printed blocks that i think were for like oval stays um, it was just cool to see him like implement the parts that you can't really manual machine. You know what I mean? Like weird yeah. ellipses and things like that. They're like kind of a pain in the ass to manually machine. Yeah. Mixed with just plate style fixtures. And I was like, this is like, this is the ticket right here. You know, you can like kind of machine like the reasonable parts quick and then get the other stuff done, just printed and it holds up well enough, you know? Yeah. So. And, you know, another thing that's interesting that makes me think of is, you know, you think of these plastic parts and you're like, oh, well, that, that would never be good in, you know, for a real tool because it's it's not very strong. But you need to keep in mind, first of all, there's all different kinds of filament that you can get. And so there's some that are like carbon fiber reinforced and whatever. And so I, I've only really played with the most basic ones like PLA and PETG. But anyway, the other thing to keep in mind is that a material is not just strong or weak. And that's the whole story. It's like if you look at concrete, for instance, it has a really good compressive characteristic, but it has a very poor tensile characteristic. So like if you had a big, long stick of concrete and you just like pulled on it, it would break fairly easily. But if you have a big block of it and you compress it, it has a lot of compressive strength. And so anyway, with the plastics, they have, you know, different properties. They're they're maybe prone to cracking in certain you know, things, or maybe the, the shear strength is this and the elongation and the yield strength and whatever. But if you, if you know how to like take advantage of the, the benefits that it has to offer you. And then if you choose the right filament, uh, you can do a lot with it. And for instance, like, you know, let's say you built like a, like a Paragon machine works tube block. Those are made out of aluminum and they have two little cap screws. And when you tighten the cap screws, uh, hard around a tube, it's going to want to like, you know, kind of split the material. And so if you just made a plastic version of that, you'd have to be pretty delicate, but you, you could redesign it so that maybe you had like, uh, like a laser cut steel plate on the top and on the bottom that sandwiched to the plastic. And if you designed that stuff correctly, now maybe you have a whole unit together that actually works pretty well. And so, you know, it's like, I think it's worth, and that's kind of speaks to my point about it challenges you to think differently. So like, if you just want to make an aluminum part out of plastic, maybe it's not going to work so well, but if you challenge yourself to think of a way to make it work, that's a good design exercise. And it might yield a really good tool for like almost no money. Totally. Yeah. Seeing some of the laser cut stuff that's coming out now is, is really cool. There's so many cool little tricks you can do to make it work. Um, I was looking at, uh, 3D or sorry, CNC plasma cutters the other day. Cause I was just like, That's you know, awesome. going down the internet hole, what people were doing. I had a buddy who got one, me and another friend were talking about it. And I was like, man, this is kind of sick for not a ton of money to have in your shop, depending on, I don't know how great it would cut 4130 and like how clean it would do it. But for a lot of other stuff, even like, even if you just did general metal fab and you're just cutting like mild steel sheet, 
be pretty sick to have one. And like you said, just combining that with like the 3D printer and all these other things, it sort of just opens up like a whole different world of, of what you can make quickly and pretty easily where you, we couldn't do that before, like not that long ago. Yeah. And I found, for people who don't already know this, the website sendcutsend.com, I don't have any affiliation with them, but they just, their user interface online makes it really easy to order, like, you know, quantity of one to however many you right. want of stuffs. And they, they have stainless steel and they have mild steel and they have brass and different materials, but I don't think they have 4130, but they're like the easy option where you can just like drag your DXF, you know, like your 2d drawing onto their website and it instantly gives you a quote for any quantity you want. Like it just shows you what it would cost, which is amazing. It shows up a couple days later, the prices are pretty damn reasonable, but then if you want better pricing or more options, if you just find a shop locally, there's, you know, two axis lasers all over the world. And you can probably find somebody down the street who, who will do that stuff for you for a pretty reasonable price. And um, so I found that some of the parts that we make for like a frame fixture stand, and there's a little part of the frame fixture, there's two parts of the frame fixture that are laser cut from stainless now. And anyway, it's just, it's not terribly hard to find people. The one shop we got to tour near us and they, the facility is crazy. They, they get like truckloads of steel in, in the morning and they process it all through every day. And just, we got to see the workflow, but like they just flow material through the shop. So like, you know, they're pretty happy to quote stuff cheap because they, they just need to keep things busy and they have the firepower to do it. So anyway, I would, there's certain things that I think are hard to job out. Like for instance, um, it's hard to find a good powder coat vendor who has quality or, you know, there's certain things that are difficult to, to find a vendor to do for you. And in my limited experience, laser cutting, uh, you know, plate goods of steel and, and aluminum and stainless and whatever, that's not terribly hard to find or terribly expensive. Yeah. Laser cutting is definitely getting easier and easier to figure out. And like you said, the, using send cut sand is just like, it's so easy that it's almost like a no brainer to just send your, your stuff through there and you just get it in the mail in a few days and you're like, well, okay, <laughs> easy enough. You know, yeah. that's, that's who I use. I Did use the guy locally for a little bit and like, I think he sold his business to somebody else and then that wasn't really working. And I was like, I guess I'm just going to send that send. And yeah, it's, it's been pretty easy. And, and to give folks when you who have, are listening it, an idea, it's like, you know, for, a, for like, let's say like a four inch by four inch chunk of quarter inch mild steel that you get some cutting done in. Like we have a part kind of like that. And when we get quantity of like 50 or a hundred, it's like, I don't know, it's like four or six bucks a piece or something. And if you were to get from like send, cut, send a quantity of one, it's probably like $10, but it's like, it, it gets to a point where like, let's say you were building some sort of, well, let's say you were building a frame fixture stand for yourself, or let's say you were building a custom bench for your alignment system, or you were building any sort of stuff around the shop or dropouts. Those are plate steel, any of that stuff. You, you could do one-off stuff where you sketch it in CAD over the course of a couple minutes you draw your, you drag your file online and then you just say, yeah, I'm not getting the best price on the planet, but it's still dirt cheap. And you pay like 10 bucks a piece for some of these fittings. And then, and then all you got to do is weld it together. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing the time that we live in. And I don't see a whole lot of people fully utilizing that. It's pretty exciting. I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm really like curious to start playing with laser cut tab and slot style construction stuff. Yeah. So like you can make a lot of cool fixtures, very like easily yes. that way for your 
<laughs> a couple years ago, Adam Sklar posted photos. He had made a fixture out of plate steel that was like that. It was um, it was probably yeah, quarter sure. inch or three sixteenths, and it was laser cut. You know, he had designed it so that when he got the parts in the mail, he just kind of TIG welded them together, I guess. And it was to make a bull moose handlebar. Uh, and so, you know, you would do like the single bend for the handlebar piece, and then you had to miter the connector tubes and the upright and whatever else. And you just, you set the pieces in there. They all were the same geometry as each other. And then you would just TIG weld it. And it was brilliant. I think I saw him post that for sale recently. He wasn't using it anymore or something, but, but that sort of stuff, it's really pretty easy. You just in CAD, you start with the finished thing that you want and then you build your fixture around it and then it exists and you just have to send the two axis, you know, the, the two dimensional drawings to one of these places and see what it costs. And it's probably pretty cheap. Yeah. I remember seeing that fixture and I was like, man, that's really clever. That is cool. Um, but yeah, def- definitely cool to see that, you know, the different ways you can use that construction. It's like the first time I saw it, I think it was like those sort of flat welding tables oh, yeah. that were all tab and flat construction. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. But yeah, cool stuff. So, okay. Um, now I have two more things on my list. We can talk as much as we need to. I have two things on the list. The one is machine roundup. Uh, let the people know the list of the machine tools that you have in your shop and feel free to share any stories about them or what you think is cool about each one. All right. Let me think about this. I've got an Alliant mill. It's just like a Bridgeport clone. And I, that's like the one machine that I actually paid decent money for when I moved into the new shop. I was like, I want a really nice manual mill that I don't have to worry about like refurbishing or rebuilding any of it. Cause I definitely went through a phase where I was, I was fucking around and, kind of rebuilding a lot of old machines that I picked up and that ate up so much time. Yeah. So I did, I got an Alliant mill and it had like hardened Chrome ways that were in good shape. And I felt like pretty good about spending the money on it. But I think that's the only thing that I actually put out real money for. And then the rest of the stuff is I have a hardened TMUM horizontal mill for main tube mitering with a fixture that I made. And that came with a vertical head on it. So I think I bought the machine for like maybe five or 600 bucks. And then I sold the vertical head attachment for as much as I paid for it. So that was like a freebie. And then I have the same lathe that you used to have the clawsing 5,900, but mine's a little bit shorter. Um, and I got that pretty cheap off like a guy in upstate New York. And then you gave me the turret for it that I still haven't used. So I'm like itching to set that up. I'm itching to set it up and do like some kind of little production of, of like some useful part. Yeah. Um, and then recently I got a bridge port for free from this old helicopter manufacturer just outside the city called Piasecki that made like some of the first helicopters that actually flew in the U.S. Pretty wild designs. I got to go and see the whole shop space and just crazy prototyping stuff. And like some of the original helicopters were actually in there and like the hangars and stuff. So that was a really cool story. And it just, it was, I had a buddy whose uh, father-in-law worked there and he knew that I had a little machine shop and he's like, Hey, they're trying to get rid of some of this shit. Like, do you, do you want this? You just have to come pick it up. I was wow. like, yeah, definitely. So I managed to find a dude with a flatbed who was like a, literally around the corner from it. 
and we loaded it on the truck and he drove it up to my shop. We got it off on the loading dock and slid it right in the shop. That's <laughs> so awesome. that was, that worked out. And then I have some Barker, uh, horizontal mills, like these tiny little mills that are really cool for like one off or sorry, one, like, yeah, one operation sort of small stuff for frame building. And I have three of them right now. Uh, two of them are set up running. And then the third one I kind of have still sitting there and I need to make a fixture for it to get it operational, but they're really cool. They're just like these tiny little mills that are barely strong enough to, to notch tubing. But if you're trying to cut like bridges or something like that, they're pretty useful for that. Um, I have one set up like just to do the cuts for the, um, the dropout end on chain stays and, and seat stays for hooded dropouts. Yeah. And I just made like a, a crude little fixture for that. Um, they have like levers on them. So you can either lever operate them or you can put lead screws on them and do it that way. And I remember when I was, so I got one off of Simon, my old shop mate for, you know, next to nothing. And then I picked up two more recently and I was at a used machinery dealer and they just had so much stuff crammed in the place. And I was digging through and they had tons of them. Like they probably had 20 of them that all came out of like one shop. And I forget what they were doing. I think the guy was making like coaxial cables on them or something weird. Like a lot of uh, like copper shavings all over them. Hmm. So I was in there like digging through, taking motors off of like this one to put on this one. I was like, I just want 110 motors to keep it simple. Some of them were three phase, ripping off like whatever table looked nicer than the other one that didn't have like marks in it. So I was just like getting these Frankenstein machines kind of together and I worked out a deal with the dude pretty cheap. And then these other guys who were in the same space, but had a different business were working on um, like welding positioners and like more CNC stuff. And the guy was like super interested that I was in there, like getting things going, you should set this up with like acorn stepper motors and was geeking out about all this stuff. He was just like excited that I was like getting machines and, it was just, you know, trying to apply what they do to this, basically. And I was like, oh, you know, that would be pretty cool. You set up, like, some kind of weird little stepper motor on here to do just, like, this one operation. I mean, it doesn't really make sense for just, like, notching a piece of tubing. But I don't know. Just got my mind thinking in that direction. Um, and then what else do I have? I think that's most of the big stuff. I have these gang drill presses that I got that I kind of need to get rid of because I'm not using them as much as I thought I would. <laughs> and those came out of a, a, a clock factory in Boston called Chelsea clock. It's like this pretty famous clockmaker, And I won them on eBay for next to nothing, you know, putting in like just bidding on stuff you shouldn't really bid on. And then you actually get it for nothing. Yep. And I went in there and picked them up and that was a really cool operation to see tons of old manual machines, still functional, still making clock parts, all kinds of crazy little like, indexing plates and things like that to cut like just weird intricate parts um but that was cool to see like a fully manual shop or it wasn't fully manual they had a cnc room but like seeing a fully manual room still making parts for clocks was, was pretty wild yeah and then i have i think that's mostly it i think that's all the machines yeah two two bridge sports style machines a small lathe you got hardinges. a your welding equipment, you got an actual gas fluxer, right? Yeah, I have a gas fluxer. That's like, um, that's what they use at the Bicycle Academy. I'd used one before. 
uh, when I split a shot with Simon and he had one. They're pretty cool tools to have. They clog up the lines a little bit, so you kind of have to like maintain them. The flux is, is pretty nasty and really awful for you, the, the liquid flux, so you definitely have to be careful. Um, but yeah, having a gas fluxer for, for brass brazing is pretty sick. I don't really use – I still use paste flux for silver brazing, but if I'm just doing like a Philip brace joint, I don't use any flux. I just use the gas fluxer. Um, a lot of people who had them – would always use paste flux with the gas fluxer, which I was like, well, what is the point of that then? If you're <laughs> like double fluxing it, I don't know, but I think it's just, you just have to move pretty quick when you're using the gas fluxer for it to actually work correctly. It fluxes the joint, but it's not as much as if you use like an actual paste flux. So I think people tend to still kind of like get it heated up a little bit too much and burnt. And then they're like, Oh, well this isn't really working. I'm going to put paste flux on it too. And it's, I don't know. Just never really made sense to me. But so if you if you just move quickly with it, it seems to work awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I if you just don't get it too hot, yeah, and you're you're moving along at the right pace. I've had good luck with it, and then I have my TIG welder too. It's just a little CK box, you know, can run it on one ten or two twenty. Um, yeah, I think that's most of it out of diacro too, diacro bender. Hell yeah! And that's, I guess that's not technically a machine more tool well, but yeah machines and tools machine tools yeah and then That's i have awesome. a hydraulic uh i have a hydraulic electric press too that i use for like forming a couple of different things yeah yeah i yeah. need to i need to get some sort of press we, there's a lot of things you can use a kurt vice as a really nice way to smush a lot of things uh because you know if you have machines around, you probably have a nice milling vise and you get a lot of control and a lot of leverage and with, you know, a lot of things lay in the vise kind of nicely, just gravity kind of holds them in place. And then, you know, it's, it works pretty good for a lot of stuff to use a Kurt vise to squish stuff, but uh, it's really not the best press for everything. It's certainly not the most efficient. Sometimes you really kind of have to abuse the vise to get something squished and, um, so yeah, anyway, I, I've been doing that for years. There's different assembly things I do on the tools we make and we really need to, I need to look into Like I have an Arbor press that doesn't have enough muscle, but I need to look into some more options for that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely nice to have it, especially if you're trying to press out uh, like shafts or anything weird like that, you know, just like odd stuff. But yeah. again, like I got to just use for kind of forming things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nice to have it in the shop for sure. Yeah. Okay. So the last thing that I know that I have on the list for sure, and we can talk about whatever, but it's uh, stunt work. Uh, I think that's a pretty cool part of your story. It's not exactly related to the custom frame building, but it's definitely related to cycling, and it's a lot of how I think of you in my head is uh, Stuntman Tom. So <laughs> tell the people something about some of the some of the work that you do outside of frame building, and uh, yeah. Yeah, this is like my least favorite thing to talk about. But um, <laughs> it kind of goes back to, to riding, actually. And it goes back to, like, the six-gear world and being involved in all that. And I had a friend in New York who was a messenger, Austin Horse, and he was working on this movie, Premium Rush, which was this bike messenger movie that came out in, like, 2010, I think, or somewhere around there, maybe 2011. I don't know. Um, but anyway he was doubling the lead on that movie and they needed someone 
he like was just a messenger. So like he kind of just rode and he was like really good at riding through traffic and stuff like that. But they needed someone who could do like tricks on this track bike that the, the main character was riding. And my name got passed along from Austin and like a few other people in New York, like a lot of like the New York messenger scene kind of got to work on that movie. Not everyone, but a, a handful of people. And they recommended me to the stunt coordinator on that. And I just got a call out of the blue. I was working on a bike shop at the time. And I sort of got a call out of the blue and they were asking me about it. Would I, would I be interested in doing this? And I was just like, yeah, sure. Of course. You know, like I knew nothing about the industry at the time. And I think I went up to New York for like an audition or they just like wanted to see me ride or something like that. And they kind of described some of the stunts that they had laid out for the movie. And, you know, we're asking my opinion on it. Can we do this, that, what do you think? Blah, 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 blah. And we went from there. Yeah. I went to the studio and met them, uh, rode, like we rehearsed some of the stunts that they were going to do. And it was basically as simple as that. They were like, okay, yeah, you know, we, we trust you. We're going to hire you for this, like specifically to do, you know, like trick riding on a bike, basically on a fixed gear. <clears throat> so they had me do like the scenes they wanted to do. It was just like, you know, bunny hopping stuff, jumping steps and stuff like that, like kind of goofy stuff. And I did all that and they saw that, you know, I was able to do these things and was an athletic person. I can fall if I need to without getting hurt. And one of the actual stuntmen, Victor, who wasn't as much of a cyclist, but he was riding and he was doing like some car hits and things like that. There were, I think, two car hits maybe in one day or in the same week. And he had done one and he was like feeling pretty banged up <laughs> from doing this. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know if I can do the other one. And they're like, well, Tom, what do you think about doing this? And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. You know, I was stoked. I fell down my entire life riding and for nothing. Right? So I was like, okay, yeah, I can do this. this car hit. And I really like to brag about myself, but I, I nailed it and <laughs> hit the car, you know, went into the windshield with my back, cracked the windshield, which is the ideal situation. You know, if you have a back pad on, you want to kind of flip into the windshield and, and crack it and it sucks up some of the impact and, and rolled off the car, hit the ground, kind of like rolled in a way to cover my face perfectly. And, you know, everyone was like, couldn't believe it and they're like you okay you okay you know i just stay there for a minute while they cut and then everybody rushed over and like you're all right you're all right and it was like a one and done shot i did it it worked great and i you know they were stoked and then after that they're like okay you know this kid kind of knows what he's doing he can fall not kill himself and from all that that kind of i got to do a handful of other stunts on the movie too that were more stunt oriented and not just bike stuff after that sort of after they you know started to trust me and they like threw me in a car the one day they're like hey we're doing the stunt driving scene you know you have your license cool okay and it was this huge court like coordinated traffic scene where this this stunt driver this guy mike burke was a sick stunt driver was ripping in and out of traffic he was the villain in the movie or doubling the villain in the movie who was michael shannon and then there was basically like all these stunt people driving as new york city traffic and either the actor or stunt double riding through it as this car speeding through and chasing it. I was like, Whoa, this is crazy. They just kind of threw me in the hot seat. Like this is this whole huge scene that's worked out shot with a, you know, camera crane and all that. So it, it was really cool, man. It's still to this day, probably one of the best stunt jobs that I got to work on just because it was so in line with, you know, my skill set already. And it was just so much fun. Um, 
and the actor, the main actor, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was, was just like a really sick dude to work for, which doesn't always happen in TV and film. Um, and got to work with friends on it. Danny McCaskill was also in the movie. He did like this whole trial scene, which was really cool to meet him. And yeah, it was just a really sick opportunity. And then that basically led to like the last 11 years of stunt work. You know, like I got into it through bikes and it just morphed into general stunt work. I mean, they would call me most of the time. It's like a bike gag came up. I've been a bike messenger so many times, crashing a bike or getting endured <laughs> by a car getting hit by a car or whatever. I've never been a bike messenger in real life, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's pretty interesting world for sure. But yeah, everyone's always like, what, what have you worked on? Who have you worked for? And I'm just like, I don't even want to talk about this, man. I, I enjoy it, but I just don't care that much. And yeah, uh, yeah. like an IMDB really wants to look and like seek that out. But yeah, yeah, it's given me some cool opportunities in life, man. And I probably wouldn't, be where I am now without that, you know, cycling in general, is just kind of like, yeah, steer life and this crazy path from high school on really, you know, I've been really fortunate to like be into bikes and have all these cool opportunities for it. And, you know, now I'm making frames. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it reminds me some of just the, the difference between when you grow up riding BMX, uh, you just have to learn to crash. Right. And for me, I rode bikes as a kid. I didn't really get into bikes until I was 19. And I was more interested in like, you know, offsetting carbon emissions. I like, I was like, oh, it's green to ride a bike. And then it turns out bikes are awesome. I had a lot of fun riding bikes. I never really had the nerve to, to do anything too daring or harrowing, uh, anything too challenging. And I still, that probably is my biggest downfall with like mountain bike riding. It's just a, like, I'm, <laughs> I just don't have that in me always to like really, you know, do anything that, that my brain is telling me is like, maybe not the smartest. And when you see someone, uh, who, who, you know, had to learn, uh, pretty quickly how not to get hurt while riding, because what they were doing was inherently dangerous they're like a cat, you know, they just fall and it's, it's like no problem. And so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to think that there's, there's a whole economy, there's a whole, uh, industry that needs people who know, <laughs> cause I guess in action movies, we just like to see violence and, and pain. <laughs> and so, you know, like it creates an opportunity for folks like yourself and skaters and, and people who just know how to, how to roll with it. And, um, and so it's it's pretty cool. I know when I uh, when I went to Philly Bike Expo two years ago and I crashed at your place for a couple of days. And when I first met you, you were like, "Oh man, I had to get hit by a car today." And then like the next day, you're like rolling out. You're you know, it's uh, it's interesting. It's pretty cool. But but you know, it's just part of I think a lot of us who are interested in building bikes. You know, we have different connections to different parts of of you know the cycling world and. Yeah, I think it's pretty novel to to actually get paid to get hit by cars because that's that's probably the best way that you can get hit by a car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's definitely interesting. It's not always just car hits. A lot of times it's like it's not action all the time. A lot of time you're there for insurance more so than you're actually doing some crazy big Hollywood stunt oh, yeah. or something. You're like, oh, okay, this person like can't drive a, a stick shift. You know, like this actor can't drive a stick shift, so we just need a stunt person to do it or. You know, like goofy little scenarios like that. That's the, the best example I can think of. But a lot of times, yes, it's not crazy stuff. You're more there for insurance or if the actor actually doesn't want to do something that might be like, you know, uncomfortable for them or they just can't because it's a liability for the production. You know, like, okay, maybe 
it's just a silly thing where somebody gets pushed, but like this person gets pushed and twists their ankle and, and they can't act for the rest of the season, then the production is screwed. So like they have to have a stunt person there as a liability to yeah. do just like this silly thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've been, I've been, sorry, good. Well, you know, like that, the phenomenon where like you ride some trail feature in the woods and it seems like the, like an amazing thing. And then you watch the footage and it's like, wow, that didn't look impressive at all. If you're in the business of making movies and your character is getting shoved by somebody else, if you shove someone kind of half-heartedly, it's not going to look like they got shoved at all. Like you probably need to shove them pretty hard for it to read on camera. And then to think of your, like your lead star getting shoved that hard, that's a pretty big, you know. It's a pretty big liability. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's, it's not full time. It's, you know, I get calls here and there. It's like very sporadic. So it's nice to have your own business to fill in the gaps with that sure. business. Like later, much more frame building for me. It's been pretty slow film, film wise and TV wise. Yeah. Well, and there's it's... not many that like fit when you're working in that industry. Like you can't have like, a regular job like oh dude i just got this call last night they want to know if i can work for the next three days on this tv show like are you okay if i don't show up for work like that doesn't fly in the real world so yeah it's it's an interesting balance between all of that yeah i i think um you know any supplementary income that you have as a frame builder they all have different drawbacks and it's hard to find stuff that's flexible and that works well and um yeah it sounds like a, at least a yeah, like it's it's kind of working for you to the extent that you still even make time for it. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah, the money part of frame building is definitely interesting, right? Yeah, it's tough. I think that the thing that draws us in is not that it pays the bills so easily. <laughs> no, definitely not. You could take a lot of other things to pay the bills much, much easier for sure. But it's a weird, you know, itch you have to scratch and a weird obsession. And, you know, it definitely draws in people who kind of are like masochists in a way, you know, it's like such an incredibly hard thing to learn, let alone to even turn a profit doing, you kind of have to be sick in the head a little bit to want to keep, keep going with it. Or just like, you know, be into bikes for as long as you have been. You're like, this is just all I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think it takes a really stubborn personality to persist long enough to actually like figure it out and get good at it. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I, I kind of wonder what like the average lifespan of like a, uh, like a newer frame builder is, you know what I mean? Like what, how long does it take before someone gets burnt out or they like, they're like, nah, I just am not going to make money doing this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love frame building and, and I'm still sort of in that world, but I don't think I could have kept just doing it the way that I was doing it, you know, like as a, as a sort of a hobbyist in nights and weekends and having to do other jobs to actually pay for stuff and having to have like a ridiculously low overhead in order to afford it at all. And all the things that I did, it was just, you know, I was kind of on my way out and then, and then I kind of found my way back in again with the tooling side of things. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of an important thing that a lot of people should know too. getting in the frame building is that like, you sort of have to have the perfect storm of all of these different things for it to even kind of become a thing you know like you i i, I don't know instagram versus real life again right like you yeah. see all these people who are like framed up with this cool life and it's like oh this dude lives in california and they're always riding in the mountains and they're 
building frames and this and that. That's like, that's not real. You know what I mean? That's, mm-hmm. you're not afraid of living in California and just like riding all the time. That's, that's imaginary. Or there's a very specific circumstance that allows that to happen. You know, that's not known by everybody. Cause like realistically dude, trying to be a frame builder and even like in Philly or a major city is like, it's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, like how much are you really going to make right off the bat frame building? How much money do you need to live in a real city each year? You know, you $60,000 probably at, at the least to live in like an actual city. And it's like living pretty, pretty humbly. I, I think, I don't know. Yeah. Like uh, people could live for more or for less, but like if you're being realistic in 2021, life, life's yeah. expensive and yeah, having is. a shop is expensive, you know, and it's all super expensive kind of luxuries in a way where it's like, this might not even work unless you own a home with an affordable mortgage and a garage that enables you to do this. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's, it's tricky. Like people always ask about getting involved in frame building, getting started and this and that. And like, it's, it's really easy to kind of idolize it and like dream and fantasize about it. But the reality of it is that it's really difficult to even get the shop set up, let alone like turning a profit, let alone even making the bike like good enough to sell to somebody. You know what I mean? Like just getting to that point is so, so hard. I've never, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever tried to do next to learning how to ride BMX growing up. But that was in like a way different context and you have friends and there's no money involved. You're just like throwing yourself into throwing yourself down until you like learn a trick, right? Like you're just sitting Mm -hmm. there all day skateboarding, trying to do a kickflip and eventually you figure out how to do it one day. But with frame building, you're usually a little bit older. There's a lot of money involved. And it's just like, it's so hard to nail it to the level of my standards, at least. I don't know what everybody else's are. But like, if you really want to make something good that you're proud of, and like, you're aware of what the actual standard is and what it needs to be to charge a certain amount of money for a bike, it's really hard to get there, man. It's really hard to like, do that proficiently. You know, you could get there eventually, but maybe you can't figure out the business end of it and make money or maybe you can't figure out the branding end of it like cool you can make a perfect tie frame but like you know there's no brand behind it no one cares or wants it (laughs) because there's 10 other people doing it so yeah i I don't know i struggle with that a lot still i think and i think a lot of other people at least so i'm like close with or frame builders sort of struggle with that too it's constantly like bumming yourself out then kind of figuring something out and be stoked again and you're like okay cool but then you're like man i just can't get this shit right and then you figure it out, but it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it's not as glamorized as on Instagram, I think, you know? Yeah. I, I think for me, when I started going to trade shows and getting to meet people in real life and talk to them in on the show floor and outside of the show at the after parties and social functions and stuff, it was really illuminating to me because it's like all these people that I knew their brand and I knew their work. And, and that's not like a, it's not that it's false or it's a lie, but there's usually, yeah, there's a whole lot more going on. You know, a lot of, I mean, I'm not going to name anybody's names or anything, but there's just like a lot of people who, if they weren't married to someone who had a job with good health care, and if they weren't like maybe also a stay at home parent, like they wouldn't be able to do it. Or if they didn't have some sort of opportunity, you know, some sort of unique circumstance, like you said, that just kind of allows them to do it. And, um, that's not everybody. I think there's some people and some people that have been guests on this shows, this show who, who legitimately have figured out how to run a profitable and sustainable business. And it is important to them to do it. 
and uh, and they do it. And I think I think probably one of the biggest issues. I mean, it's a competitive space and it's difficult to begin with. But I think what really for me and for a lot of people is like the most magnetic thing about bike frame building that draws you in, that makes you want to do it, is not focusing on making it a good business. What's exciting about it is it's this opportunity to be an artist and to make something you care about. It's like a romantic notion to make something great with your hands. And that's kind of like a totally different pursuit than it is to like make something that customers respond to and that there's a lot of demand for and that you can manufacture efficiently. And so it takes somebody a pretty special kind of person who is interested enough in the craft and the making of good things who also can be interested in the business side of it. Cause I feel like, you know, none of that stuff ever happens by accident. It's like, you need to find a way to be enthusiastic about it. And it's just, I think the personality that's most typically drawn to frame building is one that's not really interested in business. That's not why it's fun, you know? So it's, it, it kind of makes sense to me that, that it's, it's tough. And then above that, it's like, if you wanted to be successful in a, in a, like a, a business and cent, you know, dollars and cents sort of way, you're competing against all these people who will gladly do it for, for free if they have to, because they just want to, because it's exciting. And whereas if you were like, if you were a contractor who did, you know, gutter cleaning, you're not competing with anybody who's doing it for the love of it. Like everybody else is charging a professional's rate. And so, so can you, and it's like, nobody's undercutting you. So it's kind of a different, it's just a whole different economy. And there's a lot of things that make frame building tough. And yet, like we're all drawn to do it because it's just, it's like really satisfying to make something that we care about and to get it right and to build a brand that people can get excited about. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The business end of it definitely sucks. It's not fun. Not for me. (laughs) Some people are really good at that, but yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, it definitely sucks the fun out of it a little bit. I think it just like scares me more than anything, you know, uh, as like, you know, getting older, you know, you, you can't fuck around really with, you can't just be pouring money into something that's not going to return anything or like a marginal profit unless you want to just have a, a really expensive hobby or if you have the ability to have a really expensive hobby, which is fine. But I think most people who really get into frame building, yeah, are like, you know, just regular ass people who want to make a bike, like you said, and aren't focused on business. Yeah. 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 It's tough. And for me, you know, it's like fun when you do do it and you succeed at it and you finally like can ride the bike that you made, or it's finally, you know, you finally figured out how to get the through axle straight or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No one talks about that side of it. No one talks about like the failure side of it or, you know, how, like the standards or like what, you know, that's another thing. Like there's no, like, what are the standards? You know, like what one person's standards is not the other person's standards. And like, why is it such a gray area? And the same, this goes back to like the brazing thing. Like why are there so many weird gray areas that just aren't talked about and like discussed or like, yeah, you know, it needs to be within this or it needs to be this or it needs to be as straight as that. And it's just a weird tricky thing that like, I think people are like kind of scared to let the cat out the cat out of the bag in a way too, or be like, you know, like everybody fucks up. Nobody's ever going to make this shit perfect from day one. And maybe even day 10,000, they're not going to make it perfect, but it'll be better than day one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting to see like how standardized, uh, you know, things could be in Taiwan, right? Like even something as simple as like alignment, you know, like what does it need to be within or what, it's just interesting and, and no one ever really talks about it. And like, that's, I'm kind of more curious about that too, like the production end of it and how 
these factories can crank them out and how they are acceptable products. Yeah. And I don't know, all, all of it is just, again, like it'd be so cool to be able to tour one of those Taiwanese factories and see every single piece of machinery to make a bike frame and each step that goes into it and like how they actually align the frame, you know, like every frame builder I read, you'd be like, how do you align your frame? Is it up the bottom bracket? Is it up the head tube? And you'll get like 400 different answers. Yep. <laughs> 400 different frames out there that are all aligned or built to completely different standards. Yet all the factors in Taiwan have agreed what actually works. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like works, you know what I mean? Like, why don't, why don't, why doesn't anybody venture down that road? Like, well, what works? What are they doing? You know, like I think very few frame builders actually even would do that. Like I know like, um, like Moni bikes, like he went to that one factory in Taiwan. That was really sick to see like all of that stuff and how that runs. And I don't know. There's so much you can learn from it. Yeah. Did you ever see, there's a YouTube video, uh, of the Maxway factory. That might be the one that Sal went to. Maybe I've seen it. I mean, I'm always looking at, I think like, what's the, the one company that makes all the machinery. I think it's like shoes tongue or something like that. I think you see some of it, like the old Chris King, like the CLO um, factory, or it's like simple now, like they have some of that machinery. And it's like, why don't more people kind of, I mean, I know it's expensive, but why aren't there more people like looking at these things and seeing how like the real industry actually makes these, you know, like makes, all these sub assemblies because they've yeah. figured it out, you know, like we're all still trying to figure it out in a way. And like they, they figured it out a long time ago because they made money doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I look at like the CNC machinery stuff that I do and like just the speed at which things happen. Like, it's funny now we make a frame fixture stand out of two inch, um, mild steel square tube and some uh, laser cut plate. And then we, we TIG weld it cause we don't have a MIG welder. We might get a MIG welder at some point, but anyhow, uh, we put so much more labor into that damn thing than people would believe, or maybe not more than they would believe, but like relative to the other stuff we make, because I've made a big investment into some CNC machinery and damn it, that stuff's pretty effective at making CNC machine parts out of raw bar stock. And when you try to like make, you know, square tube, like I tried to job that stuff out to tube laser places, but I just couldn't get anybody to take the work. So we're doing it ourselves. But like just the amount of time you spend deburring every feature and trying to like drill holes on size and like cut it to length and cut angles. And anyway, so like I, I could do this stuff years and years ago with simple machines. And the funny thing is now like stuff moves through the shop pretty quickly. I'm used to the speed being a lot faster than it used to be because like we're pretty effective at the stuff we make. And now I have to make this frame fixture stand just to support this product for my customers, for the ones who just want to buy it. And I understand that, but like, we're not efficient at that because we don't have a tube laser basically. And uh, it's just, it's funny cause it's like such simple parts. They're really not that hard. It's not that hard to like cut square tube, and then, you know, drill some holes in it and deburr them. Not, nothing about that requires expensive or complicated tools. But for mm -hmm. us, it's like, that's actually a big money loser. And we charge a lot of money for that. Like if I was paying, I think it's like $400, $420 we charge for the rolling stand. That's a lot of money for that. But like, that's not a very good shop rate for us while we're making them either. It's, it's just like, it reminds me of how frame building, you know, if you look at like a top tube or a down tube or some main tube uh, in industry, 
they would want to get to where they would probably use a tube laser for a lot of main tubes. But anyway, you would want to get to where you could just spit those things out at like a tube a second. You know, you'd want to get really, really fast if you're actually right. making quantity. And, um, and none of the handmade frame builders do that, you know, because they have a different sort of goal. It's not volume. It's, it's quantity and cut or it's quality and custom and all those things. But anyway, from like, from our experience now with the CNC shop, it's, it's funny how like tube fabrication is actually painfully slow because like, I don't want to make a, you know, what $300,000 investment in a tube laser or something. And I have yet to find a local vendor who will do it for me. Well, I mean, there's some companies that did, they would sub out their work to tube lasers. There's a couple brands that did that Yeah. and do, you know, and that's pretty sick. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, especially if you're just using straight gauge and you're building like mountain bikes or dirt jumpers or something where, yep. you know, someone might not mind if the down tube or a certain tube isn't butted. Um, but I guess the challenge is like once you get butted tubing and you, yeah. know, you can't get it in long lengths, lengths that can run through a tube laser or whatever they need. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to see if that stuff will become, I bet you somebody could rig up something at home pretty wild off of like some kind of like rotary positioner and like a plasma or laser cutter to do it at home somehow. Yeah, no, we need more nerds. There's a, there's a really, I, I, so I know about a handful of cool YouTube videos that pertain to frame building and stuff. There's one, if you go to the, oh geez, what's it called? Comotion? Comotion. They do like tandems and. Yeah, not, they use the plate. Yeah, they have a, I maybe sent you that video once. They have a Mori Seiki live tool subspindle lathe and they have a YouTube video where they're cutting a tandem tube that's like, I don't know, five feet long or who knows how long this thing is. And it's like multiple yep. repositions with the subspindle and they have a live tool. It's an end mill that's like cutting water bottle bosses. It's cutting all these different miters for different positions. It's freaking beautiful. It's this automated process, and I have to imagine on the computer side of it, they have a fully parametric model of the tandem bike, and they just change a list of parameters for the geometry and the tube diameters and all this stuff, and then they re uh, they spit out the code again that runs this machine, and they just load in a long tube. It's probably straight gauge, and then it gets cut all these features at once, but it could be you could actually load a butted tube in there, and you know the, that's like a $250,000 machine, and the programming and the tooling and all the know-how and the, the shop space and the power. And like, it's just not practical for a small shop unless you already have that machine and you already have a skilled, you know, programmer who can do all that for you. Uh, but you know, they must already have that machinery for something else. And if you think about the amount of features that go into a tandem main tube, that actually would take quite a long time to make it come out good. So like, that's actually a, yeah, it's a decently good use of that machine uh, to do that tube for you. It's 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 really cool to watch that. Yeah, I remember seeing that video. It's really sick. And I'm curious, like, I wonder how long it would take for somebody to manually do that versus putting it through the machine. Like you said, like all the different bottle bosses and cuts and whatever they do. But, yeah, it's pretty sick. That's someone – see, I'd like to hear more of that side of things for sure, just like the crazy industry side of it. Um from manufacturers that are doing things like that if they're willing to share it too you know some yeah. of that stuff i guess a lot a lot of people might not want to talk about but yeah well i mean yeah, in their I case they they published a video to the internet about it so they must be kind of proud of it yeah <laughs> yeah it'd be cool to hear from them at some point or like bike friday like they're just a weird company you know that like bangs out production folding bikes and makes a ton of them and yeah i don't know It'd just be cool to hear their process and, and story too. Yeah, I, I should get more of the production shops. 
Uh, I know one or two people at Moots and uh, different production facilities. And yeah, it would be really cool to get guests from these different places on to to talk about their side of it. You know, it's kind of different. It's like, I usually talk to these people who run like a one person operation. And so they, they have the freedom and they are at liberty to talk about anything they want to. And so it's a little bit different with a company, you know, they need to know what they're allowed to talk about and not and how they represent the company on a public broadcast and all that stuff. But yeah, for sure. I, I would like to get more of that. I'm such a huge nerd about processes. Like I feel like I'm more interested in the process by with by which something gets made than I am in the product. And I'm only interested in the process if it produces a good product. You know, like it, the product is part of the process. But anyway, I just love the way by which stuff gets made and the way that you, you turn like raw materials into something cool. That's fun for me. And the thing is that if you are a nerd about like the production cycle, uh, then you kind of have to do volume at some point in order to make that work. And then that becomes complicated because, you know, you have a lot of customers and you maybe need to get some employees to help you get everything done. And it's, it's a little bit tricky. <laughs> it's not as romantic as just having a little shack in your backyard. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the shack is, it was, it's like the dream, right? Yeah. Everybody wants to be part of the t- TSA, the Tin Shack Alliance. <laughs> and <laughs> I haven't heard that. <laughs> that's like dreams. Like, yeah, I have this little shack that I could just make shit in and not have to worry about anything and go ride my bike and fuck off. But um yeah. I think uh, yeah, you know, I think that's a good way to put it, is like there that's a very viable and good road. Like here's here's a business plan for a frame builder that I think I am reasonably in support of, which is well I don't want to, I don't know that much about Chris Henry and his personal life, but just from the outside looking in, he lives in New Hampshire. Uh, I think he's married and they have a pet or two and uh, he's got a little horse barn in his backyard that he converted into. And I think that's like a really good way to do it. It's like, it's not oppressively expensive from what I know to live in rural New Hampshire and they have like a beautiful place to live. And, you know, like he gets to focus on doing exceptional work in a little shack and, and it has, he has, you know, the, the, it affords him the, the ability to ride some from, from his home and, and work and make quality product. And, uh, what I do now, you know, like I've grown my business to where I have an employee and we, you know, I have this facility in town and, you know, there's just like a lot of money you got to come up with every month to pay for everything. And you can do that in frame building. Some people have, but it's, it's tough. I think, I think Carl Strong talked some about that in our interview, like just the idea of, you know, growing some and then scaling it back to now he just, he works out of his garage and he has less overhead and he, you know, tries to sell a quality product at the higher end. I think that's a pretty good business model, which is just, you know, like just keep it simple. Uh, You know, you could be high tech in a little shack in your backyard too. If you wanted to, you could still get laser cut parts and 3d printed parts sent to you in the mail, or you could even get a small CNC mill, but but yeah, it's kind of hard if you want to live in the city to imagine doing that. It's really hard to find any space attached to your living situation in a city that's not oppressively expensive. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Carl Strong seems like he's got it pretty figured out too from from what he talked about on your show. Have you have you interviewed uh, 44 yet? I he forget. was the first episode. I, I said in the first few episodes with people, I would say, well, I'll circle back sometime and have to have you on the show again. So maybe it's about time. Uh, yeah, Chris has, a has always been sort of mentorly to me 
and probably to a bunch of people, but I really admire the work he does. And a lot has happened in the last two or so years since I had him on. So I think maybe, maybe we need to start the show. We, I always say this, it's like after a long break of no episodes, I say, we're bringing it back, but yeah, I need to really get back on the horse here. And uh, maybe I should uh, call him up and ask him if he's ready to do another interview. Yeah, he's definitely kind of got the dream shop, like you were saying. I think what a part of it, too, is that he's, like, documented it so well in photos. Yeah. On, like, flip and stuff that, yeah, people see it, and instantly they're like, oh, man, he, his shop is so nice-looking and, like, cozy and, you know, the ideal setup for sure. Um, but, yeah, it'd be cool to ask him about some of the full suspension stuff he's doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I got a whole list for you, dude, of people you got to interview, all right? <laughs> Mostly it's just people I want to hear about, but it's some like old builders too that it, it, I don't know. Yeah. I'll email you it. <laughs> uh, absolutely send them to me. One of the issues with this show is that the format of the show is typically this. It's that some builder that I know and I specifically admire their work and I'm pretty aware of the work that they do. I ask them to be on the show because I'm interested and I think that I could ask questions that are good and that works except that it doesn't really provide a very broad representation of builders because like for instance BMX is cool but I don't know that much about it so like I haven't interviewed like other than Spooky Dave Harrison there's like hardly anybody that I've interviewed <laughs> on the show who's in the BMX world and that's kind of a problem but like I don't really know their work or like what questions to ask and it's like I think I need to work on changing up the format of the show slightly to accommodate like a wider variety of potential guests where I can still be engaged and enthusiastic that's something I need to work out well if you're looking for a BMX guy Ben from White House you should interview him he's got a shop that he basically built from the ground up in Montana and made all the tooling to make BMX frames and is building batches of them. It's pretty thick and a lot of cool tools that like most frame builders who build like road and mountain stuff wouldn't make. So it's really cool to see like the BMX specific tools that he's made. And yeah, just interesting. So that's one person. Um, maybe you should get frame builders to ask other frame builders questions too. That could be kind of a cool thing. That could be good. Yeah. I think one thing is when I, the most recent one I did back in like May or June or whatever with Adam Procise, but that one, for whatever reason, parts of that one felt a little bit more like, like one of the podcasts I like the within tolerance podcast, they, well, they used to have two hosts and they would do a thing where uh, the one week, they would just talk to each other about what was going on in their CNC machine shops. And then the next week they would have a guest and the two of them would interview the guest and it would go back and forth. And sometimes okay. I wonder if I should just have like maybe a rotating list of like guest hosts or, or I don't know, there's different ways you could do the show so that like, basically it wasn't just like, I don't know, like I'm, I'm relevant enough in the frame building world that I can ask some questions, but I think some other frame builders might ask more interesting questions at times and also might have their finger on the pulse a little bit more. And, uh, you know, there's, I'm not saying that the format of the show that I've done is like the ideal format. And I realize that. Dude, but you've killed it. You've interviewed so many people and no one else has done this. And so many people listen to it in their Damn shop right. all the time. <laughs> I'm not saying you've done a bad job. You've done a sick job. I've listened to all of them and you know, all my buddies who are frame builders. So I've listened to them too. But 
it could be cool to switch it up. Like you were saying, yeah, yeah like maybe have somebody else interview. I don't know. Keeps it fun. Also kind of allows like a little more banter and shit talk. And, yeah. you know, I you know you got to keep it like relatively tame, but that's the stuff that I love. It's just like hearing people bitch and moan and like, kind of like, <laughs> kind of shit talk, like certain things. It's just funny. A little, like, little, bit, of, little bit of frame builder drama. A little bit. No, I don't know. A little bit of know. gossip. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, that's, that's one of the fun things about nobody wants to, nobody wants to say any shit over the internet or post it publicly right. for the most part. But when you go to the trade shows and you get talking to somebody at the bar or whatever, that's a lot of fun. Just like hearing people say like, Oh man, it really drives me nuts what this guy's doing. Or it's just kind of, it's kind of fun. <laughs> right. For sure. Everybody, everybody's got to get let loose a little bit at some point. Yep. Um, you got to get me and Gaspar to do a special. He's a, he's a funny character. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> he's got that shop that just uh, just went up, right? He's part of the TSA now. Yeah, he, he joined the Tin Shack Alliance. It's a pretty uh, nice built, like, Tin Shack. Yeah, he built a little pole barn on the side of his house, and I'm stoked for him, man. He's like a cool up-and-comer builder that I think will be around for a while and I think has some interesting stuff to say and makes cool bikes that are different from what a lot of other people are doing. Yeah. And one thing is like, I used to always interview these people who had been around longer and really like left a bigger mark. And then more recently, I don't do the podcast a whole lot, but I feel like the last 10 that I've done, I feel like a lot of them have been ones where it's like somebody younger who's like, you know, I did Sean Handerhan and I did Zach and I did Adam Procise and, and you and a couple others, just like people who uh, are not like super iconic legends of industry who've been doing trade shows for 25 years, but it's people who are kind of newer to it, but I can see that they're doing stuff that's interesting. And, and it, it reflects a little bit that like five or 10 years ago when I was first getting into this, th I didn't know anybody my own age who was doing frame building, who was making a contribution. So like everybody in the industry was just older dudes, predominantly just men. And so like, okay, you just follow along with what they're doing. But nowadays there's like a, it's cool to see people my own age and even younger who are really making a big contribution. And so, you know, I want to be able to highlight that while still also working in the, the interviews with like, I've been trying to, trying to get Steve Potts on the show. He said he would do it. So I like, I need to nail that down. Cause that, I know that would be a good episode, but like, there's that, you know, trying to manage that balance. Yeah. You should get Steve Potts and his dog on the show. I think that's cute. <laughs> yeah, he's got uh, a cowboy. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought about like the younger crowd, but that, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Like there definitely are way younger builders now than before. It kind of seems like, and I, I'm going to be honest. I felt like I was a little nervous, like kind of agreeing to come on. I was like, I don't know, man. Like, you know, nobody wants to have like imposter syndrome and yeah. like, I don't know. I haven't been building that long. I just kind of started my own brand not too long ago. I mean, I've been, you know, apprenticing and, and learning frame building for a decent amount of years now, but there's so many people out there that have been doing it for so much longer that I was like, ah, nah, I don't know if I should do it, but I don't know. Ultimately it's just fun. We're buddies and yeah. shoot the shit, you know? Absolutely. So I was like, all right. You know, and by no means am I like all the shit that I'm saying is just stuff that I've learned and stuff that I bitch and moan about. But, um, you know, I'm still learning all of this each day and figuring it out. I definitely do not have it fully figured out yet. <laughs> yeah, I think one of my favorite things in a podcast is when it's people who are like talking to their peers who are just they're like in the middle of figuring it out. Because like some podcasts are really polished and uh, what's that NPR one? How I built this where Guy Raz interviews entrepreneurs who built a business or something and. The, the one with the guy who did the Otterbox company, that one's interesting. He was a tool and die machinist, so he made like plastic injection molds and he built the company and 
like Otterbox actually was a product that was made by someone who knew how to make stuff. But anyway, uh, that's the kind of show where you're interviewing someone who's like, he runs one of the biggest companies in the United States of America. It's a very polished, put together performance. They did a live recording of that episode. But anyway, that's a very different kind of thing. And then one of my favorite formats is like this with Intolerance podcast. I really like that's the one I listen to the most. And it's a guy who's about my age and he interviews other people, many of whom are about my age, and they're just figuring out their machining businesses. They don't have all the answers. They're struggling with things. They're complaining about things. And I love that. And so like, yep. I don't want my interview, like I do want to interview the people who are like the legends who really figured it out before I was even freaking born. But on the other hand, right. I also, I, want, I like, I think it's really interesting to find people where they're at and check in with them and see, you know, like, cause right now they're in the middle of it. Like they're, uh, they remember what it's like to deal with these hurdles because they're dealing with them right now. And so for a listener who's trying to get into it and trying to figure it out, it's kind of nice if you can relate to your, your guest that you're is being interviewed more than someone who figured it out in the eighties and they don't remember that time in their life anymore. <laughs> right. Right. For sure. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, cool, it's amazing. I, I want there to be diversity in the show, I guess is what I'm saying. Cause yeah, it's like, it's really cool to say that I interviewed Chris chance and Steve Belinky and, and these different people who've been doing it since yeah, way before I was born, but, but I want right. the young people too. I want it all. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. Well, uh, let's wrap it up, man. And uh, thanks so much for being well, on the show. And uh, before we, I heard that there were a few questions submitted. <laughs> I know there were, and I did Are not. Are they presentable for on air or no? They were, I feel like they were mostly joke questions. The ones that right. I can think, there were a couple good ones. And so the problem <laughs> is they were in my DMs and the DMs just like, I get DM'd. I mean, I'm not bragging. It's not like it's a bunch of cuties sliding into my DMs, but I get a lot of DMs about different things and it's hard to find them again later. I'm not organized enough. So I apologize to people who sent in questions. A lot of them were like inside jokes where like none of the listeners would know what the hell that even meant. <laughs> That's kind of what I figured. <laughs> but yeah, they did make me chuckle most of them. And, uh, and I apologize for not being more organized. If you ask a sincere question that the, the listening audience is really going to relate to, I try a little bit harder to write it down. And I think the list of questions here reflects at least some of that, but right on, man. Well, yeah, thank you for, you know, asking to be on the show. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. We've been going on for two and a half hours now. So sorry if that's a little too long. And it's never too long. The- Nobody has once complained that it's too long. They just tune out, I guess. But like, I, I think most people, they just, they listen to it and then later they come back to it. So anyhow, yeah, thanks for being on yeah. the show, man. Thanks for doing cool work. Thanks for, uh, you know, like having a cool shop that I got to see. It's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I wouldn't, uh, you don't even buy that much of my stuff because you're like, uh, you're one of the old heads. You're wait, you're real. I don't know how to use the word head, but <laughs> you make your own tools as cool as hell, man. But, uh, even still, some I, of the stuff. what was that? I said, I try and make some of the stuff, but yeah, like when I see you at the show, I always like to support, like buy something that I can afford. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, you're making really cool stuff. And again, congratulations on the business. I mean, you're doing it, you know, you got a business and, the doors are open and you're making shit and people are buying it, which is, is really impressive and yeah. not an easy thing. So that's, yeah. that's rad. Yeah, that it's you, tough, man. You're yourself, you know, you're working for yourself. It doesn't get any better than that. It, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. So, uh, and I get to bring my dog to work every day. It's pretty dreamy. Cool too. Cool. Well, uh, talk soon, man. Yeah. Take it easy, Joe.
See you later.